This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. That is one of today's highlights. Usually we'll have, you know, it's pie day or clean up your desktop day, but today we celebrate Matt not being here. I don't know if we celebrate it or we have, if we just observe it. Let's all take a moment and observe Dr. Matt's absence. And on we go. He will be missed, though. Not quite sure where he is. He says he's in St. George, but that is debatable. Terry, do you think he's really in St. George? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and moving on. Today is also a special day because he's not here. <laughs> yeah, here. Uh, Today is also a special day, a day I'm sure we'll be highlighting with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Today, well, actually, was it yesterday or today is the opening day of baseball? There were some games yesterday, but not... Uh, it, it's confusing. Yeah. Because they'll have games yesterday, they'll have games today. They used to have games in Japan, so there was the whole international dateline right. thing. So when did it actually exist? And you get into this whole, how does time work, and is it a real construct, or just something we make in our own minds? And then it gets philosophical, and you're lost. And it's supposed to be simple. It's baseball. And, you know, adding to that, it turns out that planet Earth might not even actually be a planet. That's what I'm hearing. Wow. You know, forget about the argument that the Earth is flat. That argument is not even important when you start talking about the fact that we might not even be a planet. Uh, I don't know what to do anymore. Anyway, we'll get to all of that. We're going to try to cover and tackle all of those important topics, especially as we speak with Joe in the know, Joe Cannon here, uh, in just a few minutes. We'll also be, like I said, speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. And we'll be covering a, an interesting topic about comedians and how a lot of comedians may be suffering from mental health. And does that help their comedy? Does it hurt their comedy? Interesting, interesting topic. First, let's get to the other important topics from Terry South, who's going to tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday that Judge Neil Gorsuch will be confirmed this week to the Supreme Court, but acknowledges Republicans still might not have enough support from Senate Democrats to avoid their attempts to slow or try to stop the nomination process with a filibuster. Judge Gorsuch deserves to be confirmed. You know, unanimously well qualified by the American Bar Association. My counterpart, Senator Schumer, once called that the gold standard. That's why he'll ultimately be confirmed. Exactly how that happens, Chris, will be up to our Democratic colleagues. Republicans have 52 senators in the chamber and will need the support of eight Democrats to get Gorsuch confirmed in a straight floor vote. McConnell would not commit to using the so-called nuclear option arguing he's still not sure how Democrats will vote. The Republicans need 60 Senate votes to pass him. They're not sure if they'll get the 60. To get 60, you need eight Democrats. So far, you have three Democrats saying they're going to cross the aisle and vote for him. If not, then you blow up all the rules and just kind of force it through. I see. Which, you know, makes everyone happy and changes the rules, I guess, indefinitely in the Senate. I'm not sure how it all works. All I know is it's more fighting. Sometimes that's fun to watch. 
Sometimes it's kind of depressing, <laughs> so we'll see how the week goes. Okay. President Trump said in a new interview that the U.S. is prepared to act without China to help in suppressing North Korea uh, and their nuclear threat. China has a great influence over North Korea, Trump told the Financial Times in an Oval Office interview, and China will either decide to help us with North Korea or they won't. And if they do, that will be very good for China. And if they don't, it won't be good for anyone, Trump said. He plans on bringing this up with the Chinese president later this week. When the two meet at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, if China is not going to solve North Korea, we will. And that is all I'm telling you, Trump added. Wow. He also said that he enjoys Twitter, likes it because he gets to go beyond the media to talk to people as he was doing an Oval Office interview with a media entity. Just like, did just he skip the media, just do this all on Twitter. What are you doing? Did he say that in response to why are you still on Twitter? Yeah, okay. Much. Everyone's keep asking, isn't it causing more problems than it's helping? He goes, <laughs> no, it's great. This morning he went after Hillary Clinton once again. Hmm. It's been 146 days since the election. Lock her up. Just move away. Trump advisor uh, Jared Kushner, also son-in-law, is in Iraq with Joint Chiefs Chairman uh, General Joseph Dunford, a senior administration official, told the New York Times on Sunday. Sources say that Kushner is, was invited by Dunford and was traveling with him. Kushner, who has no previous diplomatic or military experience, has previously been touted as pre- by President Trump as a natural to solve the Israeli-Palestine conflict in the Middle East. He's also going to deal with government corruption, try to streamline things, more of a business approach to fixing government is kind of his. He's got a lot of things on his plate. That sounds like a tough job. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, so he's in Iraq. So watch for that. I'm not sure what he's going to do there. Most of the time you go over, say hi and leave because it's kind of a military thing and you're right. a guy in a suit. And finally, South Carolina beat Mississippi State for their first women's basketball title on Saturday. If you were watching, or was it Friday? You saw Mississippi State knock off UConn, ending their 111-game winning streak. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was pretty big. That is a big deal. Gonzaga and North Carolina play in the men's NCAA tournament cha- uh, game tonight. Gonzaga will seek its first national title, North Carolina going for its fifth. So, you know, probably Gonzaga. See, See their first one. It'd be, you know. Oh, so you'd rather see somebody dethrone the? I wouldn't sure. say dethrone, but you want you're rooting for the underdog. You have one of the probably top five basketball programs when you look at history and prestige, and they, you know, that's where Michael Jordan came from. So mm-hmm. they kind of have that basketball heritage stuff. It's like, eh, let the upstart guys, let the Bulldogs win it. See what happens. They got a guy with a beard. He's from better to watch. Oh. You gotta imagine the beard sweat. Beard sweat in a, in a basketball. Also, we game. talked about opening yeah baseball last night. Arizona Diamondbacks won on a walk off RBI single over the Giants. If you saw that, the Rays beat the Yankees seven three. The Cardinals topped the Cubs four to three in the nightcap. I guess you'd call it the late night game to celebrate baseball opening day. Here's President Trump, nineteen ninety four, singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game at Wrigley." Him of being a talented is he, singer. Is that booing going on? Yeah. Wow. He wasn't really popular then either. You know, it's. <laughs> oh. But I mean, there's countless videos 
uh, on on YouTube of people doing this, and it's just horrible. Occasionally, they'll find someone to bring in a Broadway star or an actress or an actor that can sing. But most of the time, people just can't do this. Can you think of any other celebrities who were booed singing the national anthem? <laughs> Roseanne Barr well, was she, one of them. She didn't really even try. No, no, no. She she sang the national anthem. Well, she no, didn't I sing know. Take Me Out to the Ball well, I know, but she didn't really try to sing it either. She went out there just trying to make it sound as horrible as possible. And then, I, you know. She was just trying to be her <laughs> yeah. because she probably figured that's what people wanted, I guess. Wow. Well, you know, luckily for President Trump, the uh, the whole president thing worked out because didn't sound like he was going to be a professional singer. No, no one was going to mistake him for that. Wrong. Where, where was that again? Ninety four at Wrigley Field. Oh, that's where you, that's where you sing that. No one else has that. I mean, they they play the song, but they don't bring in like a, a guest every single right. game to sing. So oh my goodness, that was at Wrigley. Yeah. Oh, what a treat. <laughs> yeah, you get you get to see Donald Trump in your baseball game. Not only that, not only did he not sing it very well. Uh, Wrong. Okay, he uh, he didn't sing the words correctly either. It's Cracker Jack singular. He said S. He said Jack. He said Cracker Jacks. Yeah, he's hungry. He wants more than one. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Well, uh, maybe maybe we'll bring that up with Joe Cannon. His most, uh, most people, I think, should skip singing in public unless you can sing. Most people yeah. feel like, oh, it's fine. We'll just, you know, no. They want you to sing. They want you to lead the crowd. And the you know crowd what? Though, turns on you. maybe President Trump is one of those singers that is just has a, the song, you know, the voice of a a songbird. But uh, once you get him in public in right. front of people, the pressure, he just buckles. I think there's a high likelihood that that's the case. Yeah. Because some of my favorite musicians sound yeah. incredible on the CD, oh, but yeah. then they they play live <laughs> and they're just horrible. Yeah, they can't. Well, they don't have their auto tune live. True. This is even pre auto tune. Pre auto tune. Pre auto tune. They're still post processing. You know. It's so weird. The me- I I don't know if you feel this way, but when I go to a concert, I want. The song to sound exactly the way that it does on the CD. I I do, but if they do something interesting, fine. But you better do it interesting, right? There's times where they they try to mix it up, and you just ruined it. Yeah, the song was okay, you messed it up. So I don't know what that is, what that twist is. But sometimes they'll do something slightly different. Okay, yeah, but don't I, mess with it. Just play the song. Yeah, I don't understand my the, my way of thinking because you know if I want to hear it the same way that it sounds on the CD. Just listen to the CD. I'll just stay home and I yeah. should stay home and listen to the CD and pay a fraction of the cost. Right. Also, mm. you won't have to be like next to people. Mm. You're just you're just relaxing, you know? But I like people. See? But I shouldn't have to pay to be with people. That yeah. just seems wrong. That is That does seem wrong. <laughs> anyway, Terry, anything else interesting going on? Uh, I found a bunch of, uh, you know, the baseball season starting. You're a fan. I am a fan you like of what, the Dodgers? one team in particular. Joe Cannon and I can agree on that. So I figured you guys can talk some baseball later, too. Oh, yeah. But, you know, concession food. Ooh, another favorite topic. Every, every stadium uh, every year tries to come out with the new food to either cause a cardiac event or mm-hmm. probably just more PR exposure, get people in and get excited okay. and spend more money. But, I mean, this stuff could possibly kill you. Um, it's... The, what the Atlanta Braves have one, it's called the Burgeri, Burgeriza. 
It's like a burger and a pizza. Burgerizza. Burgerizza. So if you've ever ordered two pizzas, if you've ever ordered two pizzas and a burger at a restaurant, only to have them all arrive on separate plates, and you thought there must be a better way. (laughs) There must be an easier way. That all the time. Yeah. So it's a pizza, and then there's there's like the burger fixings are mixed in. It's just this big mass of cheese. Has anybody ever (laughs) ordered two pizzas and a burger? In one sitting? I, uh, from what how this is written, I'm assuming yes. In this hypothetical, yeah. yes. Okay. Wow. I feel like the only time that's appropriate is if like you have a kid who doesn't like pizza and you have to get them a burger at the pizza place because they just so happen to have burgers. Maybe, I think the only time it happens is when you're at a buffet. You just get a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I know that Papa Murphy's mm. has that pizza, uh, burger pizza with, like, pickles on it. Uh, that sounds yeah. disgusting. I have yeah. strong feelings yeah. against Papa Murphy's. <laughs> but they not- only sell raw pizzas. Why are all of their advertisements for cooked pizzas? It's a good point. Yeah. So I, good I, point. I'm not sure if this is, like, a sandwich, like a hamburger with a pizza in it or well, the, the pizzas other, like are, the, like, buns. The, the pizza or buns or something. But when I saw it, it was just like a massive <laughs> cheese. And, a, and I was like, I don't know I'm sure what this is. Uh, Cleveland Indians, they one called the slider dog. Hmm. Right? So hot dogs, people enjoy eating a hot dog at the game for whatever reason that's a thing. You got the Dodger dogs, right? Yes. Are, it's something about the dog water or something that they fester in for hours. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they they don't it, change so. it. There's like, I, I read a story about the company in Los Angeles that makes those hot dogs. It's just some plate, some mom and pop type place and they crank out a specific hot dog that everyone loves so <laughs> but in cleveland they they want to smother the dog with all kinds of crazy stuff so it says they're topped with the burger the hot dogs are topped with bacon mac and cheese your normal sort of toppings i guess for that but i'm not sure why mac and cheese but they also put fruit loops uh there's a dry cereal fruit loops just on top of your so Fruit Loops, hot dogs, and mac and cheese, all the things that you leave with the babysitter to make for your kids when you go out on a date. Right. And it, and it's like probably a pound, a one pound, you know. But these are, these are sliders. Aren't they supposed to be small? Well, these are hot dogs. Wow. So it's a hot dog, and then they put mac and cheese on it with bacon. You might have your ketchup and onions and all that underneath it. Who knows? And And then you put Fruit Loops on top. So you dress it up like a slider, but it's not really a slider. It's yeah. just a hot dog. So basically a meal that Buddy the Elf would be a huge fan of. Yes. If you've watched that show and you watch what he <laughs> eats, absolutely. It's only missing the, the syrup, but I guess there's some maple bacon in there. Yes. So I'll have some more stadium food coming mm. up because it just gets better. Hopefully it just gets better. Because, <laughs> I mean, these are what they're – It's, it's people, already so have, good. How could you improve? They have marketing meetings to figure out how, what's the next thing. How are we going to advertise and get people in and get excited about concessions and want to spend 10 bucks on a hot dog? We put Fruit Loops on it. Let's focus on those people that are more concerned about the lack of good health. We can't seem to get enough of those people into our baseball stadiums. Oh, just – Get me a Dodger dog, maybe some nachos, and call it good. Who needs all this fancy stuff anyway? Right? Uh, Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. Joe in the know, we like to call him. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk a little baseball before we get into politics. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Joe, 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 Joe,
Well, you heard it there. It's Joe Cannon's favorite intro music to this segment that we uh, call Joe in the Know. Every Monday we get to talk to Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. Joe Cannon is chairman of the Utah Republican, or was chairman of the Utah Republican Party from 2002 to 2006. He is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can uh, look that up at fuelfreedom.org. Was a candidate for the U.S. Senate in 1992. He served as an assistant administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, from 1983 to 1985, and was named editor of the Deseret Morning News on December 8th. 2006. And today we get to talk to him on a very special day because it is opening day of baseball. Joe, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks. I know you're excited about that. I know that uh, you and I share a a common favorite team in the Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh, because you're a Dodgers fan. Good for you. Absolutely. And I was happy to see that although Madison Bumgarner got two home runs in their opening game against the Diamondbacks, that the Diamondbacks still beat them. Yeah, I mean, any any day, for whatever reason, that the Giants lose is a good day. Absolutely. (laughs) And unfortunately, one of those home runs came at the hand of uh, Granke, a former Dodger. The former Dodger, yeah, yeah. He kind of fell apart once he left the Dodgers, didn't he? I know. It's too bad. I mean, they were such an awesome duo, uh, Kershaw and Granke, and then somehow he just faded. Um, well, it's going to be a great season, and and you know that, uh, okay, there is, there is this thing called the American League. I don't really pay any attention to it, but I know that they, they do have games periodically. They don't let their pitchers pitch, like like Madison Bumgarner, who's a pretty doggone good player. By the way, Kershaw is also a pretty good player. He he's hit home runs in addition to being a pitcher. But yeah. But anyway, I guess the consensus is Boston in the AL East, Cleveland Indians in the Central, and the Houston Astros in the West. Which is really amazing because in the Houston Astros, you know, this is only their second or third year, second year, I think, in the American League. They were in the National League, and they were always at the bottom. Now they're doing pretty well, at least in their division. Yeah, so the the most important question, though, do you think this is finally the Dodgers' year? I hope so, man. We, We keep coming close, but, I mean, everybody says the same thing, but Kershaw has yet to... Has yet to perform. He's yet to become Mister October, right? After all the rest of the season, but somehow he just has failed to show up in the postseason, and that's uh, that's been a really big problem for the Dodgers. However, they are overwhelmingly by so ESPN surveyed like thirty, thirty-five supposed experts and. Uh, they're, the Dodgers are heavily favored to win the NL West. So the only question is, how do you get beyond that? How did the Dodgers get beyond that? Yeah, you said it. You know, although, you know, he didn't choke as bad as he normally does this last year. He did okay, no, but yeah. still not quite there, like you said. Well, and also, though, I, mean, I would say one of the most 
thrilling moments in baseball last year was when he came on to relieve, to be a reliever pitcher. Oh, my goodness. Know, after just playing, you know, just pitching just not too long before and just watching him stride out on the field. I guess I guess that was against the Cubs. Maybe I'm... Yeah, I believe yeah. it was against the Nationals. The Nationals, you're right. No, no, it was Washington. You're right. And that was just a thrilling moment to see him walk out and do everything he could for his team. You know, I would just be happy if we saw another game like we did a, a Game 7 of the World Series. That was probably one of the best oh, games I've ever seen. That was a, that was a great baseball game. Well, uh, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of victories... It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to cheer for the Cubs. Oh, yeah. Over, over Cleveland. Come on. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, I think uh Charlie Sheen would have loved if the Cleveland's uh, Cleveland Indians could have won, <laughs> but it wasn't in the cards as they say. Well, speaking of victories, Joe, uh McConnell is he's saying that Gorsuch is is going to be confirmed this week, he's going to go through. What uh what do you see? Do you see any hiccups there in that plan? What's what's going to happen, do you think? Well, McConnell, if McConnell says Gorsuch will be confirmed, he, he, he keeps resisting saying that they will uh, uh, pull the nuclear option. So I thought maybe it'd be good for a little background on what the nuclear option is. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so to get to be, to, to do anything in the Senate, you need a bare majority, you need 51 votes. Unless the other one of the, one of the sides, one of the parties, decides to filibuster, so filibuster, then uh, you can keep talking and talking. It actually doesn't work that way anymore. But you 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 initiate the filibuster, and then it takes 60 votes to stop the filibuster. So the real the real threshold then becomes 60 votes. So the the curious thing here is is the are the Democrats going to call for a filibuster. Well, as, as it happens, Schumer already has called for a filibuster, and he's gotten support from, you know, at least 32, 33 of his people are all in for the filibuster. Some have said they aren't, they're not out, you know, deciding what to do yet. Only three have uh, said that they're going to vote for, vote against the filibuster. So you've got three Democrats added to the 52 Republicans, you're still short of the, um, of the culture. You're short of 60 votes. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's that. So the question is, what is the so-called nuclear option? What, what does that all mean? And what, what that means is the nuclear option, the, the, in the technical sense, means that the presiding officer of the Senate, which is, by the way, not the vice president, it's uh, the it's the majority leader or whoever is occupying that seat at the time has to rule that a precedent or a constitutional question is uh, require is it requires a majority vote. So you, you can say, look, this this issue that we're dealing with now, i.e., the filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee, I, the 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 presiding officer of the Senate is going to say that is a constitutional question. And so once he rules that that precedent or, or another rule is a constitutional question, then it goes right to a vote for a majority, a majority vote. 
there's some interesting history. The the over time the threat of a nuclear option, although it wasn't called that in the olden days, goes back even to 1917. I'm not going to go through the whole history, but that was an interesting point there. But it turns out that the whole nuclear option is based on an opinion written by then Vice President Richard Nixon in 1957, where he where he created this precedent. I, he was, you know, then he was the president of the Senate. He was writing in that capacity. I don't think he, he couldn't vote on this, but it was that 1957 uh, precedent opinion by Nixon that was then invoked in November of 2013 when the Senate Democrats said, okay, we're going to use that option. So Harry Reid, then the majority leader, said, I'm good. we're going to rule that this is a constitutional question, i.e., the confirmation of judges to a circuit court of appeals. But by doing that and embodied in that, that ruling where that all was that all were that all filibusters of any anyone not being appointed to the Supreme Court. So that's cabinet officials, that's um, lower court judges would not be subject to the filibuster rule. So leaving the leaving out the, the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. So that's the background of, of the rule. Uh, they're, they're, it's a very messy issue. You have some Republican senators who still don't want to get rid of that uh, majority, that supermajority requirement or the filibuster requirement for Supreme Court nominees. So you have, have a couple, two or three who are saying, no, we're not going to vote for that, which means McConnell's in a little bit of an awkward position. On the other hand, you've got about at least nine what are so-called red state Democrats, i.e. senators who uh, are up for election in 2018 who are Democrats in states that Trump took. They're, so some of those are very vulnerable, and and three of those three of those nine have are are the three Democrats who said they're going to vote um, for they're going to vote against the filibuster, and they may or may not vote for uh, Gorsuch himself, but they'll vote to uh, in the procedural vote. So on both sides, you have uh, you have interesting issues, but I think when McConnell says he will be confirmed. I think he probably has told his team and they and I think they'll let the Democrats filibuster go go forward on that. But at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to let the will of the people. So I'm sorry I'm talking too much here, but this is, <laughs> you you recall that and one reason the Democrats are so angry and I think partly legitimate, a lot of it's for show but is that Mitch McConnell last year said we're not even going to have a hearing on, on uh, Judge Merrick Garland, who is uh, President Obama's right. for the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, so that seat was empty. Uh, the, the ninth seat was empty. So Democrats are angry about that. Um, but what McConnell said, and I believe for whatever sort this is this is has validity. Let's let the people decide. The Supreme Court was one of the major, if not the major, issues in the presidential election last year. So no one's confused 
that people voted for Trump, at least in significant part, because of his list of potential nominees to replace Justice Scalia. That was a very that was a very pivotal point in the campaign that that really increased the turnout among evangelical and religious folks and others who cared a lot about the Supreme Court. So I think, unlike health care, I just don't see the U.S. Senate saying no to an absolutely qualified uh, Supreme Court right. nominee. Joe, so do you— a long... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry for that long uh, discussion. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. I think that was important because, you know— it's good to to know what the nuclear option is. And I, I was just curious, Joe, to know if you have a favorite filibuster that's happened or are, are there any – what are some of the other big controversial filibusters that have happened over the years? That's a good question. You know, uh, I mean, I'm not sure when the rules changed, but you really haven't had much in the way of filibusters that are real filibusters, which require a one or more senators to continuously talk. But I will say one that, that I remember uh, is that Orrin Hatch, brand-new senator, first-term brand-new senator, filibustered what was called the Common Situs Picketing Bill. And that was a bill that would have allowed union members uh, who are sympathetic to a given strike, but not in the uh, in the. Um, and I might be getting some of the details wrong. This is back in the 70s, but would allow a broader sympathy strike for for uh, uh, union members who are on strike in one place. You can you could have a sympathy picket in other places. Anyway, he single-handedly filibustered that, and he won. Eventually, wow. the, uh, the the provision was withdrawn, and it was a pretty courageous act by a freshman senator taking on basically the whole world. Wow. You know, Joe, the only filibusters that, that really are fresh in my mind are the ones like in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I was going to say, in, in the movies, right. <laughs> yeah, in the movies. Or, uh, the comedian Patton Oswalt was on Parks and Recreation, and he filibustered, and he did that by talking about what it would look like for the Star Wars universe and the Marvel universe to come together and uh, he famously, you know, improvised for about eight minutes. So, uh, wow. That was interesting, though. Orrin Hatch, that was a long time ago, and he was successful. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see what uh, a filibuster today would look like. Joe, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you more about um, the Freedom Caucus and, and uh the possibility of a government shutdown. So let's do that. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with our Joe in the know, Joe Cannon. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in uh, St. George. He's missed. 
Joe Cannon probably misses him too, and he is our guest here on the program this morning. He is the CEO and founder of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can find out more information about that at fuelfreedom.org. Before the break, uh, Joe, we were talking about the Gorsuch nomination and filibustering, and I was hoping we could spend a little time now talking about the possibility of a government shutdown. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's interesting. So we've already had a really boring lecture on the history of uh, <laughs> filibuster, but it is important to understand a few a few things about the government shutdown. First of all, Mitch McConnell has said, quote, there will be no shutdown this year. Okay, that's a maybe famous last words because you have You're people right. on the right, the hard, you know, to the right of McConnell and then people, I, would, I don't know if I'd say to the left, but more moderate like, Senator McCain, who said, look, unless this funding bill has more money in it for the military, I'm not going to vote for it, quote, even if it means a shutdown. So I think it's kind of important for listeners to know what is this? Why why would the government be shut down at all for any reason? Well, there, there are three things you need to know. First of all, in the normal world, which hasn't obtained for many years, by the way, there has not the, – the, a president would propose a budget. The House would get the budget. They would deal with the budget. There are eight different budgets covering the different subject matter areas like defense, like the health and human services and others. So there are eight different bills. They have appropriations committees. They're carefully considered in the committees. The committees pass the budget forward, and then the House and the Senate – after a lot of wrangling, end up voting on each of those eight budgets, and then the government is funded through those eight budgets. Okay. Unfortunately, for several years now, because of the various control of the Democrats and Republicans, either of, and there hasn't been a unified government, and there has this has become a battleground. So there hasn't been a budget the way I just described it for years now. So then what happens is, the, by the way, the budget year for the federal government is October 1 through September 30. Hmm. So what happens is there's no budget, no budget, no budget. Then finally, right at the end of the year, they pass a continuing resolution. That continuing resolution says the government will be funded uh, as it has been with very little modification. So then what happens is there has to be now a funding bill that funds that continuing resolution. So instead of doing the budget way in the real way where experts and everybody sits down and they have hearings and and create a budget, what happens is they fight in that funding bill to fund the government as it's set up through the continuing resolution now. They fight, okay, is Planned Parenthood going to be funded? Is the military going to be funded? Is this going to be funded or not funded? So they fight about what's going to be in the funding bill. And if the right set of things for any given senator, in this case, aren't in that funding bill, they vote against the funding bill. If you vote, if so, if their funding bill doesn't get passed, there's no money, literally, legally, there's no money to fund the government. So the government is, quote, shut down except for all essential personnel. So that's what this whole fight is about. Uh, the 
as McConnell said, I think McConnell said it, unfortunately for Republicans, they own the shutdown brand. But it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats play this, because there are some issues that could come up in the funding bill that um, Democrats don't want. They could end up not voting uh, for the funding bill in combination with people like either Senator McCain or Senator Cruz or Senator Lee or Senator Paul or some set of Republicans and Democrats combining to deny a majority to Mitch McConnell to uh, pass the funding bill. So that's the, the background, and that's coming up in April. So the the last funding bill, uh, that's another wrinkle on this, they'll, they'll say in a funding bill, okay, we'll pass this bill and we'll fund the government through X date. And that's what they do. And so that date happens this this time to be this month, April. I'm not sure of the date, but it's coming up. So April, uh, I think it's the week of April 24th. Yeah, it's toward the end. Yeah. So no, this is important to know, you know, because people outside of politics are probably thinking, "Whoa, government shutdown! What does that mean for me? Do, do I have to go into work?" But <laughs> and then people within government, oh, am I am I considered essential or am I non-essential? So interesting. Right, which turns out to be ninety nine percent under the. Well, I don't know if it's ninety nine, but it's in on that order. Maybe it's ninety five. It turns out I was actually at EPA during a one day government shutdown in the early Reagan administration, uh, and there were there was nobody in the office. Wow. A weird a weird quirk of fate. I happened to fall into the category of essential personnel, but I would say there might have been twenty people. In the office that, that day, that what was you, just a one-day shutdown. But how do you how do you how do you uh, how do you feel like the American public views a government shutdown and, and essential and non-essential employees? Do you feel like this is an indicator to them, like, oh, maybe we don't need as much government if they can function with only X number, you know, twenty people? Well, I think that that's a popular conception. You know, wow, they, they must not be essential, but no one plans on a government shutdown extending over a longer, a long period of time. So it's not really, it's kind of more of a, a clever thing to say, well, you're not essential if you're not essential for the purposes of this. So the, the funding bill, this bill has in it always provisions to, to uh, have a certain number of people show up. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly want to believe that uh, the federal bureaucracy, bureaucracy could do with some leaning down, as has the, all of American industry, figure out how to do more with less. That that has not yet hit the um, federal government, although it might under the Trump budget, if that ever comes to pass. Well, Joe, it must feel so nice to feel essential or to be essential to the government. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, we, we've got a few minutes left here. Um As you know, there's still this feud going on between uh, the Trump administration and uh, the Freedom Caucus. So uh, how much of that stems from Trump's Twitter use, or does it go way beyond that? Well, I think Trump and others, uh, Ryan and even folks over on the Senate side, are upset that the House, after meditating on this for seven years, House Republicans weren't able to come up with a bill that could attract enough support uh, to get passed. Now, whatever bill 
by the way, ever got through the House, whatever bill, would be subject to a lot of change and modification in the uh, Senate. So just passing, just the House passing this bill is only step one, but they, they didn't pass it. And the Freedom Caucus has been largely blamed uh, for, you know, for the failure. But and I'll come back to what the Freedom Caucus is in a second. But the, the fact is, in this uh, sausage-making process, you know, I'm sure all the listeners are aware of you don't want to see sausage or legislation made. Um, <laughs> so sometimes people call legislation the sausage process. But in that sausage process, right, especially right toward the end, all kinds of deals are being made. And so Speaker Ryan was offering deals to the Freedom Caucus to try to get them to come along with it. But then those deals alienated more moderate Republicans who then said they couldn't support it. So it wasn't just the Freedom Caucus, but it is the Freedom Caucus that voted as a block and really, really stuck to their guns on this. And that that aroused the wrath of President uh, Trump, who then tweeted out, OK, we want to. And it wasn't just Trump. It was people on his staff and others tweeting out uh, and saying, OK, we're going to get we're going to quote primary you, meaning that these Freedom Caucus members would face primaries, because in most of the cases where you're a Freedom Caucus member, you're in a quote safe district where it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to uh, be knocked off by a Democrat. So the only place you'd be knocked off is by, well, in the hopes of President Trump, a Trump candidate going against the Freedom Caucus. Let me just say a footnote here. The, the Freedom Caucus consists of about 30 members uh, who are all very conservative and, and dedicated to certain deep conservative principles. It was founded by a, a guy named Jim Jordan from Ohio, a very, very smart guy, by the way, uh, uh, put together this group that they knew could block uh, you know, various pieces of legislation if they all stuck together. The the bad news for President Trump, however, though, is most of these are in um, districts where they're, they are were districts that supported Trump. And so he, I think the president is thinking, well, okay, then my voters are going to go out in primaries and get those guys out. But maybe we're talking about the same people. So there's an... Um, there's a website called 538, which looks at things political. And it looked at these 30 Freedom Caucus districts. Well, it turns out that only in maybe four or five were Trump voters in the primary the majority. So you've got two where Trump voters were like 76% and 74%, but you've got a whole bunch where for example, you take Jim Jordan in his district in the primary, Kasich got 43%, Cruz got 17%, Trump only got 36%. And so only five members of the Freedom Caucus are in majority Trump voter, prime, primary Trump voter districts. Hmm. A, couple of those, a couple of those are in the 70s, one is in the 60s, one is 59, and then the rest are very close to 50 or below. So not sure how serious of a threat it is. And already, by the way, even the president's kind of walking this back a little bit because he's seeing that, wait, wait, this is a split in my own team yeah. that has caused this. So I think they're kind of going, going back to the drawing board on this. And 
you're seeing a little bit of a toning down in, in that rhetoric about going about, quote, primarying, close quote, these Freedom Caucus uh, members. Yeah. Joe, do you think do you think Trump is going to stick to his guns as far as his social media use throughout his presidency? Well, we've had this conversation before on with Matt. This is like Lucy and Charlie Brown and football. Lucy's <laughs> holding the football. Charlie Brown knows this is it. This is the time she's not going to pull it away. Comes charging up and she pulls it away. I think we're dealing with uh, President Trump, who's was successful. So he's the president. He won. And a reason uh, for multiple reasons, but in his mind, one of the reasons he won was his ability. And I've, he's spoken about this. and We're not speculating his ability to go over the heads of the press, over the heads of the establishment and go to his, you know, 100 million, however many followers on Twitter. Well, it's been pretty powerful a lot of the time. It's enabled him to very often uh, control the agenda. The, 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 you know, the news stories of the day are often driven by his tweets. So I don't think we're, we're going to see any much change in that. That's my view. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being on the program. We always appreciate you and look forward to our discussions with you on Monday mornings. His name is Joe Cannon, and he is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can look it up at fuelfreedom.org. And he is our Joe in the know. We'll speak to him next Monday. We'll take a quick break, and we'll continue the discussion when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm uh, standing here with Terry South, who reminded me that over the weekend we celebrated April Fool's Day. Now, well, I didn't. Some did. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any pranks pulled on me, did you? No. Huh. But there is a, a semi prank that you wanted I to talk about. I saw some. This one was interesting. Um, so, the Russian Foreign Ministry, they run all the embassies for Russia. Mm-hmm. They had a phone message that they put out. So. It was on their Facebook page. It's not really pro- – it wasn't probably actually what what you would get if you called their switchboard and got that answering to say press 1 to do this, press right. 2. yeah. But this was kind of a uh, a funny thing they put out on April Fool's Day, kind of making fun of the current situation where the U.S. looking into Russian interference mm. and they don't think anything happened. They think it's a bunch of paranoid Americans. And so this is what they played on their phones. Allegedly. You have reached the Russian embassy. Your call is very important to us. To arrange a call from a Russian diplomat to your political opponents, press 1. To use the services of Russian hackers, press 2. <laughs> to request election interference, press 3, and wait until the next election campaign. Please note that all calls are recorded for quality improvement and training purposes. There you go. <laughs> wait, you're telling me that the Russians have a sense of humor? Yeah. Wow. So, again, this was just posted to their Facebook page. It wasn't actually their phone system. But uh, a ministry officer who did not give his name said that this is uh, – it was a joke. It was officially Good for them. So. That's so funny. Oh, They they deny it. Last week you had uh, President Putin was asked about it, and he said – well, he misquoted – well, he said Reagan said it, but it was actually George H.W. Bush, where it's don't – you know, read my lips – no, and the quote was yeah, no new taxes. Right. He just said, read my lips. No, I didn't do anything. 
<laughs> Nobody, I mean, and then you get the at the yeah. same time that same day the Senate is going through this whole laundry list of things that they believe they did, and so I mean, it's difficult because there's not like a, a straight line from A to B to show there was interference, but you know you can go off of the. Uh, public perception of russia which has been painted by what our government yeah to tell us what the russian government's doing and so i don't know if they actually did it or not so well good for them for showing that they can laugh at this whole this whole fiasco which is the russian hacking and the russian interference with the u.s election it's good to know that even with all those big heavy topics and uh controversial subjects that we can all just find something to laugh at So good for them. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will continue having fun. We're going to be speaking, too, with McKenna Baus, our producer, who will be informing us that perhaps the planet Earth is maybe not a planet. Hmm. How's that for a tease? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get to that fun stuff. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Good Monday morning. <sighs> you know, Terry reminded me. Well, first of all, this is the Matt Townsend Show, and this is Jeff Simpson. If you're just joining us and wondering, why am I not hearing Dr. Matt Townsend? Or maybe you were thinking, Matt sounds a little younger today. We have been accused of sounding the same. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that maybe this is my little April Fool's joke to you. Uh, and Terry reminded me before the break that we did celebrate April Fool's Day over the weekend, but I completely forgot about it. Not that I'm the kind of person to go around pranking people and making them... Look like a fool, but I have been the beneficiary of some great April Fool's jokes over the years. Would you like to hear some? Let's let's hear it. Okay. So we have these cousins in our family that their April Fool's Day is very much a thing for them. And we came home one day to discover several things did not look quite right in our home. For instance, my dad used to have hundreds of videos. And he would take them out of the cardboard sleeve that they'd come in, and he'd put them in a plastic case, but the cardboard sleeve would then be turned into a cover for the plastic case. And uh, they thought it'd be funny to take all of those movies and put them in different cases. We're talking hundreds of movies here, switched around into different cases. So they did that, and they put shoes from one room into another room, and mixed them up that way. And then, of course, you've got the good old classic, let's put some peanut butter uh, behind the handle of the refrigerator door so that when you go to reach for that and pull it open, you get peanut butter all over yourself. Or, you know, the the hose attachment for your sink? Yeah. You wrap a rubber band or some kind of a band around the The handle so that when you turn on the faucet... Just sprays you. And it gets you every time. (laughs) Every time. Oh, my goodness. So I'm the fool. Or at least I was the fool. Luckily, nobody did anything like that. Did you have any uh, 
pranks pulled on you, Colin? Um, I didn't have any pranks pulled on me, no. But um, I saw a couple of uh, cool ones. Google did the. You know how Google has the Google Home? Yeah. They said they made one for your back porch, and they called it the Google Gnome. The Google Gnome. Yeah, the video for that is hilarious. Mm. It was really good. Netflix had a good one last year when uh, they aired a promo from John Stamos, and he made it seem – he did this promo saying that he was going to have this special on Netflix that was all about who John Stamos really is, you know, referring to himself in the third person. And then you go down the page, and it's – Movies that John Stamos likes or movies that John Stamos will watch alone and cry, you know, things like that. And then, of course, it was all just a big, huge prank. Didn't Netflix also air like there's a video of John Stamos like going to the Netflix headquarters and like flipping out? Oh, like yeah, yeah, stuff in the headquarters. There are people in the waiting room. They're like, they, what's going on? They did that after April 1st, I believe, you know, because he was pretending like he was under the impression that he was going to have his Netflix series. and Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's a good one. And then, of course, always be weary when you get a wedding announcement that says that so-and-so, that the the... the Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so will be getting married on April 31st. It's yeah. always a red flag that that's not true because there is no such date as April 31st. <laughs> so just be on the lookout and don't be made a fool. <sighs> Colin Tanner, by the way, is standing where I normally yes, stand, making absolutely. me look like a fool today. <laughs> I wish he we does. Had, do we have a soundbite of he uh, Mr. T saying, don't act a fool? Uh <laughs> You probably won't find one because the line is actually, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who don't uh, eat all your greens now. There you go. Anyway, hopefully you enjoyed April Fool's Day and uh, nobody got hurt. That's the important thing. Just don't get hurt. You can have some fun, but it's good to be kind. Anyway, We'll uh, continue to talk April Fool's pranks, or maybe we won't. I'm going to keep you in suspense. (laughs) But in the meantime, let's uh, head over to Terry South, who's going to let us know what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on President Trump's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court today. The committee currently seats 11 Republicans to just nine Democrats, so Gorsuch is expected to easily sail through that voting. This committee's ballot is an important step towards Gorsuch's main confirmation vote, which Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday will happen on Friday in the whole body of the Senate as they vote. Do you know if, is this committee split half and half Republican and Democrat? Well, I just said there, they have uh, committee currently seats 11 Republicans and nine Democrats. (laughs) Okay, I was just making sure that you were paying attention. So yeah, the committee is because the Republicans hold the majority, they have the the uh, the edge in that committee when it goes to the the full Senate for the vote on Friday. That's where the uh, the uh, right now there's like there's some Democrats who are kind of coming across the aisle. And they need eight of them. They have three, so that comes into more of a of a, mm. a game, I guess you could see as the week goes on. Here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on the vote. It looks like uh, Gorsuch will not reach the sixty vote margin. So instead of changing the rules which is up to Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority, why doesn't President Trump, Democrats, and Republicans in the Senate sit down and try to come up with a mainstream nominee? Look, when a nominee doesn't get 60 votes, you shouldn't change the rules. You should change the nominee. 
So, yeah. Mm. The Democrats, uh, as you heard there, the stance is just change it. If we don't like it, change it. And the Republicans aren't going to do that. So right now they need eight Democrats. They've had three that have uh, said they will cross the aisle and vote for this candidate for uh, the Supreme Court. So we'll see how that goes throughout the week. I I mean, I can see the mindset of, look, if we can't agree on somebody, let's find somebody we can agree on. But it seems like the Democrats are just going to say, put in a Democrat and then we'll agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it's it's really an interesting uh, discussion they have. Like, do do something that I would agree with. For right. Once. Well, you won't do it for me. So it's just, yeah. Uh, President Trump on Sunday morning lambasted critics who said his efforts to replace and repeal Obamacare were fraught, saying a new deal in, is in the works. Anybody, especially fake news media, who thinks that repeal and replaces of Obamacare is dead, does not know the love and strength of Republican Party. Trump wrote on Twitter. It's really interesting trying to. Read Twitter. Uh, talks on repealing and replacing Obamacare are and have been going on and will continue in such time as a deal is hopefully struck, he added. So, health care is still out there. We'll see okay. If we'll, we'll maybe get a round two or three. I'm not sure where we're at right now. Uh, two people were killed in Louisiana Sunday morning when a tornado tore through the area. Victims were identified as a mother and her three-year-old daughter, whose mobile home was flipped off its foundation and destroyed by the storm. Louisiana, Mississippi, and a thin sliver of Texas are bracing for tornadoes, massive hail, high winds, and uh, as a a storm system passes through the area later today, this afternoon, the Weather Channel reports uh, the storms are going to sweep through kind of the south there and then through Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina. So that whole Mm. area, whole region is going to be seeing storms and possibly uh, tornadoes later today. Is this the sliver of Texas that, that you lived in for a couple no, of years? No, no, no. I was in West Texas. Oh, it's okay. boring out there. Um, and finally... <laughs> that is true. Yeah. A Massachusetts man who sued a pair of Dunkin' Donuts owners because he said he was given butter, a butter substitute, when he asked for real butter on his bagel, oh. has won a settlement. <laughs> he won. He went to court and won. The Boston Globe reports that uh, Jan Polinick sued uh, his suits named two companies that together own more than 20 locations of Dunkin' Donuts. The lawyer uh, acknowledged that his client's complaint is a minor thing, but they decided to sue to stop the practice of representing one thing and selling a different thing. Uh, the lawyer did not disclose the settlement terms. Uh, the attorney for one of the franchises confirms that the case has been settled and the stores have changed their butter serving protocol. See, I would have <laughs> I would have held out uh, for a deal with I can't believe it's not butter to be their new spokesperson or something. Well, again, that's it's not butter. <laughs> you didn't give me real butter. Guy wants butter. Where's so, the real butter? This is the uh, this is the type of person that would sue Subway because their uh, foot long sub is not. Exactly 12 inches long. Right. And it's not. If you measure, it's just a little short there. Wow. I always thought it was funny. You know, on KFC's packets of butter, it says butter flavored spread. Now I know why that's there. <laughs> so they don't want, they don't want to they get don't sued. They don't want to get sued. Oh, but you saying that made me sick almost. Yeah, butter flavored spread. Butter, butter flavored. And it's in a packet. You squeeze it out. There's something wrong about that. So, yeah, the got. Sometimes you see these lawsuits, you think that's pretty frivolous, but it goes through and you can get that company, business, whatever, change their their protocol apparently over well, something like butter. You know, to a certain extent, I agree with him. This You have complaints about a certain dot-com shipping company that won't do your two-day service that you're allegedly paying for. So Flamazon has yeah. got to stop. <laughs> Go get them. This irresponsible... And they're just throwing that two-day shipping term around so loosely, they don't mean it. And now they're charging sales tax. So it's like, eh, who oh, cares? You mean here in Utah? 
across the nation. <gasps> really? They put that in last week, I think. They announced it. Because the problem is they're in the state of Utah, they're doing it. I think California probably. There's several states that have enacted sales tax on online purchases. And so instead of having, you know, 20 different policies, they're just doing sales tax across the board. <laughs> Every state. See, that you can kind of understand, but this butter this butter usage has got to stop with Dunkin' Donuts. Could and you it imagine sounds like they a did. Dunkin' Donuts like manager like going into a meeting with all of his employees? Okay, guys, we're going to learn the new butter protocol. Yeah. Um, don't call it butter because it's not. I'm probably going to end up doing the voiceover for those HR videos. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, speaking of breakfast foods... How would you feel if you were eating pancakes and in public and you got cited for doing something wrong while eating those pancakes? And what's wrong with eating pancakes in public? Nothing. Nothing. Maybe if you're using fake butter. Maybe that's why he got cited. Was he not cutting the pancake and just trying to put the whole thing in his mouth? Because that could be kind of awful. Ooh, like a pancake roll up? No, not even that. Just stab it with the fork. Right in the middle. And just, oh, and just, just shove it right shove in. It, just like, go for the whole thing? Yeah. That could be a little... Sounds like an interesting that. challenge. See? Yeah. Well, here's what it says. Authorities say they've charged a Florida, Florida man recorded on video sitting in the street eating pancakes. Okay. A, a Lakeland Police News release says Kieran Thomas was charged Thursday with placing an obstruction in the roadway and disrupting disrupting the free flow of traffic. There you go. That's well. I mean, if so, you're sitting in the so middle of the street, so it's not the pancakes; it's blocking traffic. Yes. Okay. So, but he wasn't arrested. Uh, but he was issued uh, a court date uh, for April 25th. Police first received a call Tuesday morning about a man sitting in the crosswalk of a busy intersection. The caller said the man had a small TV tray in front of him and was eating what appeared to be pancakes. We don't know. No. Could be something else. Could be a waffle, a crepe, perhaps. A crepe, yes, yeah. offers uh, or a, a blinchik. No, no, no. Blinchik is uh, something else in Russian. Hmm. Anyway, uh, officers responded, but Russian. the man had already left. A video of the incident was later posted on Facebook and shared in a message to police. Several people tagged the video to Thomas, who police say admitted pulling the prank. So it sounds like maybe wow. it was in connection with April Fool's Day, maybe? April yeah. Fool's. Was, I'm eating pancakes. It was, well, okay. it was last week. Could have been. Who knows? But what's interesting in the story is his friend saw him. Tagged his picture on Facebook, oh, no. and then the cops just went, "Oh, it's him." Easy thanks, enough. Thanks, friends. Thanks a lot. That's why I think Facebook is inherently evil because it's not helping here. <laughs> so just, the, yeah, that guy could have totally got away with that. And you wonder if his friend, if there was some uh, malice involved there. Could be. Hmm. Maybe he didn't invite him to his birthday party or something. Did you? Did either of you see? Speaking of blocking traffic, not exactly blocking traffic, but my wife was watching a video on Facebook, I believe, of James Corden dressed as Belle from Beauty and the Beast with an entire cast of players Hmm. during the pedestrian crosswalk time going out on the crosswalk reenacting scenes and singing from Beauty and the Beast. No. Check it up. It's it's so – Clever. And then, of course, once the light turns green again, they immediately rush off the street. And what's cool about this is they actually have 
several of the cast members from the film Beauty and the Beast, including Luke Evans and Josh Gad and even Don, uh, Dan Stevens, who plays the Beast. Yeah. So they're in downtown <laughs> L.A., and just imagine James Corden, who's got a little bit of a beard, dressed as Belle, singing, you know, Be Our Guest. and Sounds like a nightmare. Oh, it was so funny, though. And just interesting to see what people do, how people react. You know, even when something funny like that is going on, you still have people honking their horns. Get out of the way! That are impatient. And uh, to be fair, though, this is downtown L.A., Stuff is filmed there all the time. They probably put up with stuff like this all the time. <laughs> People eating pancakes in the middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. But it's a regular if you, occurrence. If you wanted to see James Corden in a dress, or if you wanted to see Josh Gad singing <laughs> in the street, uh, disrupting traffic, then just look it up. I'm sure you just type in James Corden Beauty and the Beast or James Corden Bell. Really funny stuff. Let's do this. Uh, Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a gentleman who is going to be talking about a matter that is not such a laughing matter. He's going to be talking about why comedians often struggle with mental health challenges. Interesting topic. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is in St. George. I don't know if he wanted me to tell you that he's in St. George. He's in uh, he's in uh, Las Vegas. Again? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He went back. Anyway, that's where he is. I can give you his room number when we come back from the break. Um, but before we do that, we're going to be speaking with uh, Gordon Claridge, who... Is uh, He's an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University and emeritus fellow of Magdalen College. And he's here to talk to us about mental health, which obviously is no laughing matter. But uh, believe it or not, many comedians suffer from mental health. And we welcome you to the program. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. That's a, that's a pleasure. So for just right out of the gate, I want to know who your favorite comedian is or who are some of your favorites. Well, uh, there are many British comedians. I suppose people like uh, Malcolm McIntyre is a famous comedian here, um, uh, I guess. You mean in the present or past? Oh, no, no, no. Just uh, of all time. Oh, right. Well, I mean, Spike Milligan was a very favorite of mine. He was a long time ago. He suffered from serious mental health problems, but uh, he was a funny man. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, he was probably the funniest of the people, and he also suffered the most serious mental health problems, actually. Yeah. You, you know, when I think of British comedians, I think of... Stephen Fry and oh, Eddie, yeah, Eddie Izzard, and yeah. Yeah. Eddie Izzard, actually, is is quite a favorite of mine. Um, he's a very sort of quirky kind of person, isn't he? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so Dr. Claridge, I know you did this study on comedians and, and mental health. How did you become interested in this topic, or how did you stumble upon this topic and, and decide to do further research on it? Well, it really goes back to an interest in creativity generally. In other words, nothing to do with comedians. Uh, I've had an interest in the relationship between uh, mental health and uh, creativity, basically, the kind of madness creativity thing, which is an old idea, really, that people who are highly creative uh, uh, have, may have mental health problems or have traits which relate to that. Um, so that's where it came from. Uh, and then it struck me that comedians were a very good example of creativity. So, so that's, that's, how, that's how I came to it. I came to it from a general interest in... Uh, the relationship between madness and creativity. Yeah. So speaking of those traits, what? How many of those? How many of those traits are nature versus nurture? What can you tell us about that? Well, that's a, a hot topic, of course, because people disagree a lot about that. But um, from the position that I came to it, it, it was the idea that there is a rather large heritable component in the traits. That's not always agreed. There is a lot of controversy about that. But uh, so my view would be that uh, these are sort of inherent uh, temperamental traits, if you like, that people inherit. But of course, that's not the only story because nobody would believe that uh, inheritance acts on its own. There is always a, an interaction between uh, the environment and. Uh, and the genes. So, I mean, the boring conclusion, I think, is, if you like, is that it's really an interaction between the two. That, you know, it's not one or the other, but some people take extreme views, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you think there are benefits of having psychotic traits? Obviously, there are drawbacks from that, but are, are there any benefits from having some of those psychotic traits? Oh, yes. Well, that, that really is the whole point of my research. I mean, I've always taken the view that it's a sort of spectrum. You know, all of, the, all of these traits are on a dimension or dimensions. And uh, in moderate form, they do have beneficial uh, effects, really. In other words, uh, uh, you know, creativity, for example, might be one of them. It's not the only one, but uh, that's one that uh, is illustrated by this comedian work. Um, if you have them in a small degree, um, then they're beneficial. Not everybody, again, agrees with this. I mean, it's a very controversial area. Sure. But, but uh, that, that's my view, anyway, that, that you can find moderate amounts of psychotic traits that uh, benefit people. So, Gordon, you mentioned creativity. Why, I mean, why would some of these psychotic traits spark creativity? Well, it, it's partly to do with the cognitive style, if to use the psychological jargon, the, the style of thinking that people have that varies. And, and one style is a sort of off-the-wall thinking, you know, out-of-the-box thinking. And that, um, although it may seem distant from mental illness, actually certain forms of psychotic illness 
are characterised by that. People think very much out of the box, and if they think too much out of the box, of course, it can lead to mental illness, you know, paranoid ideas and all sorts of psychotic things. But um, in a moderate form, I think it facilitates creativity. Um, so that's, that's one certainly element in it is the cognitive style, the thinking, the way of thinking. If you think of comedians, a lot of their, and may stand up comedians, for example, a lot of their humor is out of the box thinking, isn't it? It's sort of seeing something different in what most people uh, see as ordinary. So that that's one fact. Another fact, I think, is the the mood. You know, there's a, the, the thing about the comedians we looked at, and I'm, we just did another study, actually, which we've just finished, which comes out in the same way. I think the thing is they often have what you might call a cyclothymic temperament, that is sort of a bit bipolar, and the mood part of that is important. The high mood uh, can facilitate this uh, cognitive style. So the two act together, really, I think, to uh, um, facilitate each other. I mean, Robin Williams was actually a very good example of that, I think. He had quite, uh, 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 well, perhaps more than psychothymic, perhaps even bipolar temperament. And I think if you if you think about how these comedians behave, it, it does look as though you know one is facilitating the other. That is the high mood, the excitement, the impulsivity, and so on, the risk taking that goes with it, and then this cognitive style. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too because it seems like. You know, obviously there are a lot of people in, or there are people in entertainment, I should say, that have used drugs or abused alcohol. And there may be people uh, in the inter- entertainment industry that don't use those drugs, but for them, performing and having the feedback from the audience is kind of their drug. And so maybe when they're not on stage doing the thing that makes them feel good to help them get that high, they don't really know how to handle life. Would you say that's true? Well, yes, that's exactly what we found in a way, because uh, the, the peculiar thing about the profile, the personality profile of the comedians we looked at, on average, I have to say this is a statistical study, so it's always, you know, what the average effect is, but it's fairly significant. And the typical profile was very unusual because they had this sort of uh, extroverted, uh, high mood component, but they also had a kind of depressive, uh, uh, what we call anhedonic component, and that's very odd, really, because, you know, it's not a natural kind of combination that you find normally. But they they had that, and, and that's the kind of cyclothymic uh, profile, I think. And um, the, the, the high mood bit of it, the acting uh, on stage and the, the um, uh, you know, the, the com- comedic act, actually, is, I think, a kind of compensation and a, a way of dealing with perhaps an underlying uh, depression. And when they're not on stage, you're quite right. I think often they do feel quite low, actually. And, and there are biographical uh, or autobiographical accounts of that, of feeling 
you know, things are not so good when they're not on stage, but going on stage is a kind of medication, really, kind of self-medication. It, it gives them a high uh, that compensates for the, uh, well, we, well I, we call it anhedonia, but it's a sort of depressive mood. Did you so in this study when you these comedians that you looked at uh, did you find anything that was kind of on the other end of that spectrum where you know maybe the comedian prefers to be more of an an introvert off stage and I, I think maybe some of this comes from the enormous amount of pressure to always be on this expectation that comes from the audience member. To, for them to always be on, but maybe that's not who they really are. They Maybe they want to take a more business approach. This is who I am at work. This is who I am at home. Have you, w- Did any of that come up in your study at all? Um, well, it did in the sense that we had uh, one or two uh, people who spoke of that because in addition, I mean, it was a sort of statistical study of traits and so on and not very much introspection, but... Um, we had individual comedians who said precisely that, yes, that, you know, uh, sometimes I'm just very introverted and, uh, you know, uh, when, I'm in, when I'm expected to be funny, you know, I'm funny on the stage, but often I'm not like that at all. Um, what, what is their real personality, of course, is difficult to... <clears throat> To say, isn't it, really, whether it's the introversion or the extroversion? But the interesting thing is, it's this combination. That that's a that's a crucial thing we found in the study, and we've just found it in another study of women, and we've just finished another study of just of women comedians, and that comes out very clearly. Um, and it comes out, yes, in in the reports that some comedians give. Um, but, but as I say, it's difficult to know what is the real personality because they're both uh, they're both the real personality, aren't they? If you have a sort of um, mood change personality, that's what you are, really. Yeah. Gordon, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you more about maybe some of the differences between male and female comedians and uh, – also, uh, I'm interested to know which comedians you, you took a look at. So let's do that. We'll continue the discussion when we come back. We're speaking with Gordon Claridge, who is uh, an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And uh, we're speaking about mental health and comedians with our guest Gordon Claridge, who's uh, who's done some research on this. And Gordon, before we went to the break, uh, you started talking about female comedians as well. And I'm curious to know, did you notice in your research, uh, what were some of the, the big differences between female comedians and male comedians in terms of mental health? Well, I mean, we've just finished a study which was just about women. The first study had both women and men, 
Uh, I mean, the basic pattern, actually, of this kind of cyclothymic temperament is the same, really, except it does seem, in the first study, that women seem to show that more, actually. They seem to show more um, um, what we call impulsive nonconformity, which is a kind of high-mood part of the temperament. In the second study... um, it comes out even more strongly. So it, it's not a particular difference in that respect, in, except that it's just more exaggerated. But we did find, a, uh, and we used a different set of questionnaires in the second study, um, which uh, did show some interesting things. Uh, for example, they seemed to show high heterosexuality, which was a rather surprising, well, not surprising, but... Um, it seemed to me that that was reflecting the fact that they were working in a they work in a male profession really i mean uh, the the comedy is very much a male profession even now i think and so i think there is a sort of uh, competition perhaps which sure causes them to be more interested in men perhaps i don't know <laughs> i mean one has to avoid being kind of sexist about this, uh, and I don't think it, 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 the results show that. They simply show that um, they have to work a bit harder, really, if you'd like. And I mean, another, the other thing we found is that on this particular questionnaire was uh, a lot of exhibitionism. They, 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 they scored highly on exhibitionism. Um, that's not a, actually a comparison with males. That's simply that on the questionnaire, that was one of the high scores. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the woman that, as it were, funded the the uh, project, a woman uh, who works for or organises something called Funny Women, which is a kind of website in Britain, uh, one of her predictions was that what she thought that women would show was exhibitionism. They were more exhibitionist. But I don't know what what that signifies particularly, but uh, I think it may be driven all of it a little bit by this competition between um, men and women and women having to be more uh, I don't know, well, you know, just work harder at it and be more outrageous, perhaps, or I don't know whether you would agree with that. but uh, No, I, I can see that it, point, absolutely. It, it, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it's, it's, it, I mean, it is a male profession, basically, and it's more difficult for women even now to uh, be part of it, so they have to pass the more male, as it were, or, you know, make more risque jokes or whatever. Sure. Yeah, you know what and, I mean? yeah and you're probably aware of the uh, the CNN uh, miniseries that they have right now about comedians and the history of comedy. And I think there's an entire episode that deals with that very thing, with female comedians and the pressure behind that and trying to succeed in, in as you said, a very male-dominated um, career choice. And yeah, having to say things that maybe a woman might not otherwise say, which yes. do, which doesn't sound right saying, but you know what I mean. Uh, just trying to that whole aspect of trying to compete or keep up with with men who are saying those things too. 
Yes, yes, I'm sure that's true because one does get that impression with some female comedians. Anyway, they they're quite on the edge, aren't they, in that respect? So, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier in the program uh, Robin Williams, obviously somebody who is loved by so many people, and you know, not just on a not just from people who are fans of his, but people that are in the entertainment industry that are close to him and and really love him. Um, and obviously, we all know people that that may be in the spotlight that ha- that suffer with mental illness. But we might not be friends with them, but we could be friends with somebody who's not famous, who has mental illness. So just in a very general sense, what are some things that you think we can do to help a friend who is struggling with mental illness? Well, uh, I mean, I think, you know, often the choice is uh, for such people is between drugs and not drugs, isn't it? And and that's a, an awful kind of choice. And I think... Uh, Although some people with serious mental illness have to take drugs, um, I mean, there are kind of so-called cognitive behavior therapy, psychological treatments and so on, which can help. But on a personal level, I think one just has to make them see if one can. And, of course, it's often difficult because they don't have an insight sometimes that um, a lot of their traits... (coughs) are very normal, really, very adaptive, and that it's perfectly all right to be unconventional and, uh, you know, not be uh, labelled just as a patient. So, that I mean, in a general sense, I suppose that's probably quite a good approach, isn't it, to accept them as they are, really. That, that's always been my view. I've, I uh, worked a lot with schizophrenic patients and... Um, uh, you know, just listening to them and so on and not dismissing what they say is just crazy and trying to get underneath whatever might seem crazy to understand them as people. So it seemed to me, and it's a very general kind of answer to your question, but uh, that has always been my view, that one has to accept them as people, uh, and and it's perfectly all right. I mean, as long as they're not, you're not dangerous to themselves sure. or other people, that's obviously a cut-off point. If somebody's, uh, you know, intent upon killing somebody, obviously that's right, not right. a good thing. But, but outside that, it seems to me quite a lot of deviance is perfectly all right, you know? Why shouldn't people shout about in the street if they need to or do whatever they do? And so that that is a general approach, I think, that, uh, you know, in other words, re- emphasizing the dimensional side of it and um, that it is on a spectrum. And, that you know, that, that's also true, of course, of of Asperger's syndrome, which uh, mm-hmm. is another another area that I've looked at a little bit, um, and uh, you know, a lot of these people are highly talented people. They may be slightly weird to other people's eyes, but uh, they often have talents, and, and that trying to utilize those in various ways is a good thing, you know. Yeah, and Gordon, you know, you mentioned uh, not only. Um, accepting someone for who they are, but also helping them to see, which can be difficult to do, helping them to see that some of these traits that they have are are 
normal. You know, they're not as abnormal as they would think, which is kind of ironic because comedians especially seem to be the voice of everybody at times, you know, when they're voicing frustrations with a certain topic that I think that's how we identify with them so well is they're saying things that we are thinking, but we would probably never say ourselves, you know? Absolutely, absolutely yes, yes. Out of the box, really out of the box stuff that, uh, or off the wall stuff that um, we may think but wouldn't verbalize you know? right and they can say that in in a comedy setting which yeah. is uh, acceptable and uh, no i think that's absolutely right uh, i think the whole point of the, the whole creativity it's not just comedians the whole creativity thing is that is about that about doing something unconventional or different uh, that basically is not dangerous i mean that is a cut-off point i mean obviously uh, some highly psychotic people do dangerous things, and uh, even people who are not often don't have an insight into their behavior, and they often do need drugs even to get to them psychologically, you know. To, they're sort of really out of it, uh, so sometimes drugs are necessary, but I'm, there's a great deal that one could do without that, I think. And uh, it's not a, it's not always a popular view is psychiatry, unfortunately, but... Sure. So, um, in fact, America, it's interesting that there is a big argument between American and European psychologists about that. I hmm. think in the European model, the dimensionality is much more acceptable, whereas I've found in some American, uh, I have to say this, American thinking, it's a much more medical view. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Gordon, just as we wrap up the interview here, well, something that we like to do on the program is just uh, we like for our guests to mention the one thing that, that we can do today or the one thing that can help listeners today. And in the in the case of mental health, I'm just curious to know, how can we help remove the stigmas that surround mental health illness? What's something that we can do today to help? Well, I think embrace it as, as having as an essentially healthy component which goes wrong, but nevertheless is essentially healthy in, in the moderate degree. And just embrace that, I think. Embrace, if you like, deviance. It's not necessarily something to be stigmatized or, or disliked, but just accept people as they are. That's what I would say. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us on the Matt Townsend Show. Gordon Claridge is his name. He's an emeritus professor of abnormal psychology at Oxford University and emeritus fellow of Magdalen College. And he's known for his work in developing the theoretical construct of uh, schizotypy. Schizotypy is the putative dimension normally distributed throughout the population whose defining characteristic is that of proneness to develop schizophrenia in particular and uh, psychosis in general. So, Gordon, again, we appreciate having you here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
and talking about mental health. It is an important topic and uh, an interesting one to connect with comedians. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our own McKenna Bouse. She's going to be in the house talking about the earth, and she's telling us that maybe it's not going to be classified a planet? What? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down. Welcome back. It's the House of Baus, or it's time for McKenna House to enter, or McKenna Baus to enter the house. Uh, we were just talking about that. This is her house. McKenna, welcome once again. I'm glad to be here. Great. So you have some news that would probably make our good friend Pluto, or Matt likes to call him Mo Pluto, very happy, I'm sure, because Pluto was probably, I think it was 10 years ago, was declassified, meaning he was stripped of his planet status and is now considered a dwarf planet. What news do you have here for us this morning about the planet Earth? Yeah. So back in 2006, uh, Pluto, no longer a planet, mm-hmm. still hurts to this day. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons that happened was because there's a sort of a set of classifications that bodies in space have to meet in order to be considered a planet. And there's some people out there who've been doing some research and paying attention to those classifications and have realized that according to those set of rules, Earth should not be considered a planet for the exact same reason that Pluto was kicked out. That would be the ultimate revenge. Yeah, I feel like Pluto's out there feeling really salty right now. (laughs) But then, you know, like once Earth gets stripped of its planet status, it'll have a friend. There you go. Either that or – A friend very far away. Either that or Pluto's like, hey, you kicked me out. I'm sorry. Like – So these are the the (laughs) same rules that us humans came up with. Mm -hmm. To declassify Pluto. Yeah. And so according to our own rules. We aren't a planet. Oh, Why no. just change them? <laughs> well, that's – and that's it's a big part of the, the debate. So the organization that sort of created this rules is called the International Astronomical Union. Yes. And there's um, – you know, oh, a set of rules. And so the IAU. Their, their rules include um, that the object in space, the celestial body um, – needs to be in orbit around a sun. Um, it has to have enough mass to uh, have enough gravity to like make it into a, right. you know, a sphere. Yeah. It has to be spherical. And then it has to have sort of cleared its neighborhood uh, of other objects. It has to – and this is the one that knocked Pluto out is that if you imagine – um, you know, a planet or a dwarf planet or whatever, and it ha- it's in orbit, and you imagine sort of this belt around it, this mm-hmm. sort of buffer zone. Anything that falls in that buffer zone has to be pulled in to start orbiting the planet. So like the moon that we have, you know, starts orbiting us, and anything else in the buffer zone, the idea is, would get pulled in too. Yeah. And the- unless it's outside of that buffer zone, then it can have its own orbit. But if you have something that's holding its own orbit around the sun, not around you, but it's crossing into that buffer zone, 
the idea is, you know, you don't have enough of a gravitational pull. You're not. You're not good enough. You're not good enough, and you're not therefore a planet. And that's what the issue with Pluto was. But now we've realized that there's a thing that crosses into Earth's orbit. It's like this asteroid or whatever. Missed and by that much. It, we can't pull it in. We're we not good enough. We're not good enough. It's we're not so strong people are like, enough um, gravitationally. You know, by by your rules, your very arbitrary rules, <laughs> wow. Earth doesn't count anymore. And so there's a lot of oh, you know man. people who are saying maybe we should reconsider. But if we, we don't, if we don't planets. change the rules, then what does this mean for planet Earth? Do we lose really sad all information we we now know is the lost. whole whole it's our whole all, lives are a lie. Do we lose it like everything a, is a lie? Planet Earth? Nope. We have to like you know rebrand that dwarf planet Earth. That maybe we lose our tax exempt status. I don't although know. Although that's maybe. not a real thing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, and so there's been a couple different people coming out saying, well, let's try and change how we classify planets to something that makes a lot more sense and is a little less arbitrary. But that process, we're sort of realizing, is sort of difficult because science says you can't define something by what it isn't. Mm-hmm. You have to vi- define something by what it is. Except we have a very limited sample size. We only know enough about you know the planets right here in our solar system and we're still finding stuff out there that it's sort of hard to say like, oh, these are the rules. Sure. Well, are they really? We don't know. Um and so some people are saying, well, it should be a sphere in space smaller than the sun, but that makes it so there's like 100 planets in our solar system. <laughs> other people, you know, are trying to say some other things, but really it's just a mess, and I think we should just be nice to Pluto and let it back. Okay. So, but there's there's the next question. Does this mean Pluto gets to come back? And if we accept Pluto back into the planetary club, do we have to take a bunch of other uh, dwarf planets into the club as well? You know, that's that's part of the, the concern, and mm. it's definitely up for debate. Sounds like we need to build a wall. We need to, we need to, we need to strengthen our gravitational pull. That's what I think. Yeah. We well, just need to do some bench presses in the gravity. <laughs> McKenna Baus, thank you so much for your insight. What a fascinating topic. And, and now I just have more questions than I feel like we have answers. But one thing is for certain, I just want to share the words of Stuart Smalley, Planet Earth, and tell you that you are good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people, people like, like you. you. Exactly. <laughs> so just everybody this morning on your way to work, Maybe not while you're driving. Just look in the mirror and tell yourself that. And, and you'll, the earth. And you'll instantly feel better. Anyway, McKenna, thank you very much. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun and continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today, Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. And uh, he's staying at the uh, Best Western there on St. George Boulevard. Room uh, 303. Um, they need ice, by the way. Let me know. So if you can stop by the <laughs> ice machine on the way to his room, he would greatly appreciate it. <sighs> no, I think Dr. Matt actually owns a home down in St. George. But uh, 
or it's a timeshare. Yeah, that works. We're we're either way, he's not here. This is a this is kind of a blackmail situation. Basically, we're going to release a little bit of information every day until he comes back to the show. So you'll get a week's worth of uh, information about Dr. Matt that maybe he didn't want you to know. And Dr. Matt would be the first person to admit that you get information on Matt Townsend's show that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So he's going to live to regret those words. Anyway, I'm also here with Terry South, our producer, and Colin Tanner, who is running the board for us this morning. Yo. <laughs> and he's excited to be here. Anyway, we've got some uh, some fun topics coming up on the show. We're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation, talking to them about the first day of baseball and the big basketball coming up, as well as some more local sports that are happening. We'll be talking about uh, a man that robbed or tried to rob a McDonald's in a robe and using an unusual object. And what I mean by unusual is you wouldn't normally see it in a robbery and expect to have a successful one, that is. Uh, we'll also get Spencer and Jerem's take on some of the best April Fool's pranks that they've seen. And we'll also be replaying an interview with a uh, a woman named Ilan Shrira, who will be talking to us about the importance of eye contact, Colin. What about it? I was just you saying first, that I as won. I was making eye contact with you. You blinked first, though, but I won. All right. If you're keeping score, make a note of that. But uh, we'll get to all that fun stuff here in just a few minutes. But first, let's head over to Terry South and get the news of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Sunday suggested the continuing controversy over the Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election is distracting to President Trump's agenda. McConnell pointed to the president's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, and his proposal to move forward on tax reform. This is just what the country needs to get the kind of growth rate that would produce jobs and opportunities for the next generation, he said. The Kentucky Republican also dismissed calls for the independent commission that some have called for to investigate Russians, Russian meddling into the presidential election. It's just not necessary based on what we know, he said. McConnell's continued. He hopes the Senate Intelligence Committee will find out what happened and then be able to issue a unanimous report. So we'll see where that goes. Indiana Democratic Senator Joe Donnelly announced Sunday that he will vote to confirm Neil Gorsuch to be the next Supreme Court Justice. Donnelly is the third Democrat to publicly support Gorsuch following West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp, all red state Democrats. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Gorsuch will be confirmed one way or another this coming week, which indicates he may invoke the so-called nuclear option. If Democrats try to filibuster the nomination, this would mean the threshold lowers to 51 votes, a simple majority instead of the, as right now, the 60 votes needed to pass this justice. See, that's refreshing to hear of a Democrat who's going to vote for him and not going yeah, to... Yeah, he, he's doing it because he's in a state that voted for Trump and he doesn't want to get primaried out of his position. So I see. He may not be doing it because he feels <laughs> it's right. He's doing it for survival. He's doing the the wrong thing for the right reason or the well, right thing for the wrong reason? he'll say he's doing it because he thinks this is a, a good candidate and needs to go forward, but he might be motivated by, you know, threats. But that never happens in... Of course not. Okay. That's why Trump's been threatening people on Twitter. <laughs> That's how that works. Uh, a New Jersey trans Transit train derailed during rush hour at New York Penn Station this morning, forcing passengers to be evacuated from cars in the second such incident in the Midtown Manhattan hub in less than two weeks. Officials said a uh, 
emerging what emergency officials at the scene said one person injured and the derailment. The New Jersey Transit officials said services were suspended into and out of Penn Station, which is a very busy location. A witness on the New Jersey Transit train, which was coming from Trenton, New Jersey, said the train began bumping and shaking before stopping and that a broken wheel was visible from inside the car. On March 24th, a slow-moving Amtrak train derailed and sideswiped a New Jersey Transit commuter train at Penn Station, causing minor injuries, so they may have a issue at Penn Station. Sounds like Sheesh. it. Or people are sleeping at the wheel or texting or Some, who knows. Sounds like somebody's going to end up in Penn State. Right. And finally, Lexi Thompson is taking a very needed three-week break after what she describes on Instagram as an emotional day. The professional golfer was taking part in on Saturday in the ANA Inspiration Championship at Rancho Mirage, California, when she did something that no one noticed except for one sharp-eyed viewer who emailed the Golf Association a day later spotting the infraction. This all according to golf.com. The rules violation, Thompson picked up her ball to mark it before a putt and then put it back in the wrong place. Officials on Sunday reviewed the video, then docked Thompson four strokes in total, two for the ball that was misplaced by an inch and two for signing an incorrect scorecard, and notified her that she was leaving the 12th hole, or notified her as she was leaving the 12th hole. She's like, this is a joke, a stunned Thompson said, calling the rule ridiculous. She was leading the tournament when she was informed of the infraction, but suddenly found herself trailing by two strokes. She managed to rally, only to lose in a playoff. Even Tiger Woods weighed in on uh, Twitter saying, viewers at home should not be officials wearing stripes. Oh, oh my were, goodness. They've had some problems with this in the PGA where uh, someone, again, mismarked a ball. Someone on TV watching with their DVR and HDTV is like, wait, that's not right. Enhanced. And they called the golf course to inform them of the infraction. And then the, the people on the phone got a hold of rules people on the course. And they went through the whole thing live on TV of informing him and what trying to figure out what the what the score should be now. And so mm. Should the you have a rules person following each person sure. on the golf course? Should yeah. they be the one that enforces the rules, or should you be able to sit at home and go, "Nope, that's wrong," and then from you know thousands of miles away affect a tournament that you're not even at? That's too much power for the average viewer. Although it sounds like maybe this is not the average viewer. Well, it'd be the same thing in any other sport, like in the NFL or NBA yeah. or a baseball game. That's not a strike because the yeah. cameras are right there. We all have instant replay on our DVRs. But there's there you cannot take the human element out of these sports. That's what makes them so but, great. But, but all the sports, not all of them, most of them have instant replay. I know they're right? starting, to, even baseball starting to so you know adopt the, that the a little is, more. Who? Is the who's the judge on the rules? It has to be the referee, or if you have some sort of rules person on site, they deal with it, not at home viewing yeah, audience. The people that are getting paid to do that it turns into a big problem. Now they've had this whole tournament kind of turned on its ear because of that. Yeah, well, and in, even in an office setting, mm-hmm. we all make mistakes, and yet we're still getting paid for that job. Why can't those professionals be held to the same standard? You know. They're going to make mistakes. Yeah. They can't be perfect. I don't know. We don't expect them. This reminds me of the uh, the Brian Regan bit that he did about – it was a also on a golf course where a viewer w- called in to say that the bird sounds that he was hearing on the track – were, those birds were not indigenous to the areas uh, that they were playing in. Obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. They were cheating, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. But you know what? I, I Gosh, that's got to be annoying as a golfer too. Golf is different though because there's the there's such a reverence for their rules. Hmm. It's highly annoying if you don't – if you're not really – 
I guess, acquainted with that because it's like you, you it's a gentleman's game, right? You, when you're out on a golf course, you don't have a rules official. You call your own infractions. Right. And you hear like the, I took a mulligan, right? Or I used my foot yeah. wedge where you yeah. just kind of kick the ball in. Well, those are just sort of jokes that people play. And, you know, you, you have rules amongst friends and stuff, but there's this set of rules. They're hundreds of years old. We play by the rules. Each course, because of different, you know, topographical features to the golf course, will have a different rule here and there. You're aware of those. But the game is what it is everywhere, and that's the integrity of this game. Yeah. And then you now you have this this other set of eyes watching all across the nation as people are watching all these uh, these tournaments. They see the infraction because they all play by the same rules. Mm-hmm. And but- it's not it's, – some of it's not – I mean, and they showed it. She picked the ball up and moved it, you know, to the side – an inch and set it back down. That's a rules infraction. You can't do that. You have to go in the same place. Wow. So if no one caught it, does it matter? It was like an inch, right? Who cares? But it changes the whole mm. course of the tournament and someone sitting at home is like, oh. but I mean, I watch a basketball game. You're like, that's a foul. Well, the ref didn't call it. So well, was it a foul? We just got six know. calls in. It was actually an inch and a quarter. Sorry. There you go. But <laughs> the listeners at home are refing you. They treat the rules so much differently than other sports. There's almost a reverence for these rules of golf. I guess it kind of depends on the intent of the golfer, but there's it's impossible for us to know that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even in an office setting, how annoying would it be if you're at, there at your computer somebody's pe- peering over your shoulder saying, oh, actually, uh, you don't need that comma there. Yeah, that's the worst. That's an Oxford comma. You don't need that. Yeah, you're using too many commas. It seems like there's just too much. Did you use an ellipsis when you meant to use a semicolon? (laughs) Interesting, though. So at some point, someone's going to get mad and they're going to address that the viewing audience does not have a say in the rules. That's really what they need to move to. But I don't know if they want to do that. Leave it to the professionals, the people that are getting paid. Maybe or maybe. If they're going to rely on the average viewers, offer some kind of an incentive. Like, here's a coupon to Bed Bath & Beyond. Well, for but, not calling in. <laughs> then, uh, then it'll turn yeah. into kind of a bounty situation. Let's try True. to find the mistakes instead yeah. of just watch the tournament. So. Yeah, but you, there are people that do that with everything, and they're called the, – they're people that hate watch. Right. And, you they, know? and no one listens to them, right? Yeah. You, you can be a fan. You can have a problem with how a game is called, but it's not like the, the governing league is like, oh, this guy out in Minnesota is ticked off because he thought that was a foul. So we're going to go back and – no, that was a foul. You should actually get another foul. You know, they're gonna not. Yeah. They're not looking to change games that way. And for some reason, <laughs> golf listens to people who call into the clubhouse Maybe we or should... email the, the the organizations. Let it go. Maybe yeah. there, should, there should be a rule about censoring infractions. You just, there's a whole the black box over where mm. she put her ball. Maybe no one would have known. You know, Terry, you mentioned you said you wanted to bring up some more food at stadiums. Yeah, this one's good. And they're. I mean, it seems like. These sports are doing stuff to change up the game or the you know the enjoyment level of these games to if, get ratings or to get more audience if members. If you there. follow Major League Baseball on Snapchat, no, I do. They will. <laughs> they actually send whoever their person is to the different ballparks and they eat this food. Oh, I right? love that job. So it's just like top down camera shot. Here's the food, and then they eat it and they sit there and watch the game. Right? Wow. So. And it's just like they give you like four photos and you see it disappear. And they're like, eventually. wait a minute, I have to sit through a whole baseball game? St. Louis Cardinals, they have something called the Hill Meatball Cone. Oh, I'm listening. So it's a cone, looks like about maybe six inches of, of a cone. Now it says um, – Are we talking sugar or just uh, original? The cone is made of Italian bread. Oh, my goodness. Filled with four meatballs and a lot of cheese. 
So you got, you see the picture here. Uh, it's pretty big. So the cone's about six inches tall. There's there's three wow. to four big meatballs in there and a ton of cheese. Delicious. So you're eating like this big meatball lasagna thing as you sit in your. But you got a cone, right? So I always enjoy the food. They go. give it to you that you consume what's what's holding it. Yes. Right. Then when you're done, you oh, may yeah. have a piece of paper and you're done instead yeah. of all this other trash. You eat what is containing the food. Yeah. That's innovation. It's easy to get confused, though, and then people start eating their hand. But oh, yeah. you, know. well, you may have to because I imagine it's messy. <laughs> it's probably messy. It looks like you get a little mini St. Louis Cardinals uh, baseball helmet. Ooh. Those little collectible helmets. You can get one of those with the two. Wow. Another one is a Cracker Jack and Mac Dog at the Pittsburgh Pirates. How does that work? So they wrote here, Executive 1, how do we create an even more popular concession item? Executive 2, we could mash all of our current top sellers together in one plate. <laughs> Executive 1, that's brilliant. Seems I don't legit. even want to hear what you have. So they have a hot dog and there's Cracker Jacks on it. And mac and, and mac cheese. Because that is, I've always felt the element of that, that's missing from my hot dog. Crack, cracker Jacks and where's, macaroni and cheese. Where's the sugar? Yeah. Just load wow. it up. Wow. So the cone, uh, I think another name for that would be the cone of silence because after you eat it, you'll die. It did talk about food coma kicking in after consuming oh it. So, and I, it's probably very healthy and <laughs> it's uh, full of all the nutrients you need. So, Terry, I'm curious. I, how many games do you go to, first of all, through a regular season, whether it be basketball or baseball? How many games would you say you go to? Normally zero. Normally zero. But yeah. you, you mentioned you went to a jazz game recently, Took my right? my kid. My wife thought it would be a good idea. He was done in a half hour. So looking up at the concession menu, in your opinion, what are they missing? I used to work in that building, so I didn't uh-huh. really look at the concessions because it's like a bottle of water, $7. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, eh. What a deal. Yeah, and so <laughs> the concessions are all over the place. And I don't really know. I, 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 I watch people come in. They have like pizza and nachos and hamburgers, mm-hmm. and they keep trying to turn it into a restaurant type sure. uh, experience at the ball game. And what's hard is the seat isn't really made for yeah. a restaurant experience. Here's right? your gourmet meal for, yeah. for your sticky seats. Or, or people walk up with sushi. I'm like, why are you eating yeah. sushi at a basketball yeah. game? It seems like that's not the venue for fish. But yeah, it's fine. You got these huge like you don't know where to put it, and so like people put them underneath yeah, your seat, and then right. like when you're going out, you accidentally step on it. And you got nacho cheese. It's all just over kind you. of uh, you need food that will work in the venue, and usually hot dogs. You know, yeah. again, food that's contained in what you eat. Like that sure. meatball cone would be perfect because you eat the cone and it's gone. Wasn't the original thinking behind the concessions that it's food that's so cheap and of such low value that if you stand up because you have to cheer because of a great play, it doesn't matter if it gets thrown all over the place? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that <laughs> was an idea. The concessions are secondary to the game. But they've started stepping up the concessions because the home viewing experience is so good. Yeah. They need a way to attract you to the venue. True. So they need – there's the, more Wi-Fi is available. A lot of uh, teams have their own specific apps, so they'll have running statistics if you want to have that and more personalized for what you want, and you can you know adjust them however. And then the food is another option. They have uh, – like I said, they want to have a restaurant feel to it. They even have more restaurants in the buildings. Yeah. So that you can just show up and make a whole evening of it instead of stopping somewhere else and just trying to yeah. streamline your whole evening into one building. Your mom's not going to be able to make nachos as good as they do at the stadium. No, but, you, I mean, there's a hassle involved in going. True. True. Parking, traffic, and parking and all that. So they want, to, a, they want to make it as attractive as possible. Got to deal with people. Yeah. People. I don't know if that actually works because it's just kind of <laughs> – like I said, I took my five-year-old and we're there 
I think we got through the first quarter, and he goes, Dad, are we done? Can we go now? Because, you know, everyone stopped and went back to the bench. He's like, all right, we're done. I'm like, no, 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 there's three more of these. And he's like, oh. Yeah, that was, that's the way it was when I was a kid. I, I finished my hot dog. I mm-hmm. guess it's time to go. So I'll stick around until my dad gets me the Frosty. I think they should refocus their efforts not on trying to redefine all these different meal options, but – To perfect the classics. Or – yeah, just make it better or just lower the price. Could be. That would yeah. be so much more popular than I want a cone of meat and bread. Yeah. You know, I bet you they get more revenue than ticket sales. Yeah. Anyway, I'm still intrigued. I'd probably try it and then I'd die. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to be talking about an interesting subject. It's actually a replay with Dr. Matt. So don't be fooled. It's not me. It's Dr. Matt. He's going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Ilan Shrira and the importance of eye contact. Interesting. Colin and I are having eye contact as we speak right now. We'll take a break and uh, we'll revisit that topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever passed by someone and just felt their eyes on you? How did you know that they were staring at you if you can't even see them? Is it a sixth sense? Is it paranoia? Or is it something we biologically come equipped with as humans? Dr. Ilan Shrira joins us. He's a a social psychologist at Arkansas Tech University. He joins us today from Arkansas to tell us more about the science behind the feeling when you know someone is watching you and what it means for your relationships and even your own survival. Dr. Ilan Shrira, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. Great to have you. This is an interesting um, feeling. I think a lot of us, I think pretty much everyone has to have sensed sometime that people were paying attention. They were watching them, um, and, and you can just feel it. Is that is that accurate, or are we just paranoid? What's really going on when we have that feeling? Oh, it's very accurate. We're doing it all the time. I mean, normal conversations when people are around, uh, I guess what the, the sort of the strange parts come in is when we don't know someone's there and we sort of realize it and it seems like we haven't seen it or we sort of get a feeling, but it's such a sort of non-perceptible thing that it, it feels like it's extrasensory perception. Yeah. So I think we, we definitely all get that once in a while, perhaps very often. Um, but it, Where does it come from? What is it? Is that gaze detection? Is that what you call that? Yeah, gaze detection is one is, is probably a simple way of saying it. Uh, detecting other people's gaze, um, you can you can think of it as I mean two very general types of gaze perception, gaze detection is that we're aware of where other people are looking in general, whether it's uh, at us or somewhere in the environment, and then we tend to be even more sensitive to when someone is looking directly at us, hmm. and that that sort of really sets off something a little bit more in the brain it's more meaningful to us and, and when they're doing that what goes off in the brain like is it is, is it our fight or flight that we're like uh-oh we're either a dinner or we're going to be laughed at um it's it's not necessarily positive or negative it does seem to be like you mentioned similar to something like faces where we have certain parts of the brain that are devoted just to facial perception and recognizing and reading faces we seem to also have uh, some parts of the brain 
uh, that overlap a bit with faces, facial perception, uh, certain modules in the brain that are, seem designed to detect other people's gaze. And it's, it's spread throughout different parts of the brain, but it does seem to be a system that evolved not just in humans, but other animals too. And it's active in, I mean, just, just about every kind of social interaction uh, we can think of. Um, and the function is, I mean, just more generally, I mean, if we're not even talking about eye contact, you're aware when you're talking to someone or several people at the same time where they're looking, and it's a mechanism of joint attention. So you, they look in one direction, you look in that other, in that same direction. Uh, where people are looking is just very basic to t- turn taking and conversation. We're usually just not aware yeah. uh, that that I, the other, like the eyes are so um, important there. I mean, I guess that's true, right? When you're talking to people, you can. You 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 almost even re, like if you're speaking to two people, you might follow their eyes and the one that's looking away you look at. Then there's that weird moment like where are you looking? Um, yeah. But but it's interesting how that is how you kind of also can gauge where you are in the conversation when it might be turned to time to take turns to turn the conversation over to someone else. Exactly. Yeah. What people uh, whether they like you whether they don't like you. Whether uh, and in general, like what are their intentions? I mean, mm. if they're looking in some direction and they're walking, or maybe they're get, they're about to move in that direction. Um, and then more socially, eye, direct eye contact is very important for intimacy. It's um, when people intimidate one another. Uh, eye contact is usually the beginning of it. Uh, eye contact is associated with uh, certain emotions like happiness and and anger. And when we're afraid, when we're anxious, we tend to avoid eye contact. So the eye contact is also a cue to others' emotions. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, the eye contact directly, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Uh, it just sort of depends. I mean, we, we tend to prefer faces when, peop- when the eyes are looking directly at us. It's more a cue that somebody likes me, someone's paying attention to me. Yeah. So in that sense, it's a good thing. But like you say, it can also be a, a paranoia thing. If you don't want to be watched by certain people, it, it can be a negative thing. Well, and it's interesting you bring up anxious or a- angry. I mean, um, y- when someone's mad at you and they've got that look of anger, it, it, that's a fighting moment. I mean, that's kind of a dangerous moment. So no wonder you wouldn't want to look at each other then. I mean, unless you're really ready to fight, eye to eye sometimes is hard. Absolutely. And if it's clear if someone's angry at you and they're looking at you, if you're ready to fight, you look right back at them. If you want to be submissive and kind of avoid it, you look away. So you think of a parent scolding a child, they're really scolding them, and the child will tend to just look down, look away, or the judge is sentencing them, look down, look away. Uh, From both sides, it's a very telling nonverbal signal. Have you ever um, watched, this is just kind of shallow, but I think interesting, um, online on YouTube, there is a, a guy named Kevin, I think his name is Richardson, and he, he basically, they call him the lion whisperer. He lives on a 700 you know a- acre uh, preserve of lions, and he, he actually interacts, he lives with these lions, basically. But wow. he, he, he uses a lot of his body language to... Um, to communicate to these animals where he's submissive and, you know, he'll pop him on the nose if they bite him too hard. And, but he's learned to kind of do their, do their stuff. I mean, a lot of this sounds like just kind of natural biological 
stuff that we're doing. And and the eyes, I guess, are a tell, right? They're a tell for what we're thinking. Yeah, probably the most central tell. Um, and yeah, with lions, it's a great example. I'm sure people who train dogs or people who have any sort of pets, uh, have pets, uh, animals understand eye contact to a large degree, especially dogs and probably most others. Uh, so it definitely extends across animal species. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not sure if eye contact is, is would be – I'm curious whether eye contact would be central to uh, Kevin Richardson's no. training of lions. His or? is more phys- physical. So he oh. just knows that if you don't want to – if you want certain moments when you want to be submissive, just be smaller. Just so he just his, he does he just moves his body more in relation to where the other cats are, and there's other times he'll move himself bigger, but he knows not to be bigger than the lion um, in certain moments. Be smaller. It's but it's so subtle. But I guess what you're teaching us is these these clues are there, the cues are there, and there's some interesting research in your article about why how the human eye has evolved to have more of a sclera. I guess we call it. Yeah. Talk about that, because that to me is fascinating as opposed to like just animals' eyes. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. It's, um, so you have the, the center of the eye, the, the dark part. You have the iris and the pupil, the center of the eye. And then what, what for, for in humans, the white part of the eye. Um, and if you look at – so this research looked at uh, – took the, the image of an eye across 40 or so different primates, humans included – but gorillas, monkeys, uh, different types of monkeys, and looked at, uh, okay, what is the color of the sclera, and how much, does, how much of the sclera can you see in the visible outer portion of the eye? And you find that compared to all other primates, in humans, humans are the only one who have, we have no pigment hmm. uh, in our sclera. It's completely white. In all other primates, and, and virtually most, lots of other animals, it's, there's some pigment so it's darker um and in humans you see the most visible amount you see the the greater you you see the parts outside of the the pupil and the iris whereas in other primates the the pupil and iris cover most of the outward appearance of the eye and the explanation well and so the implication there is that if um if you have the, the the dark part covering most of the eye and if you have a pigmented sclera it's difficult. It's more difficult to tell where someone's looking, where mm. that animal is looking. Whereas for humans, we've evolved in a way, uh, our eyes have evolved in a way so that it's very easy to detect exactly where we're looking. Right. Which I guess is for communication. Yes, precisely. And I mean, see, I even in, the, in your article, it even shows a dog, for example, even a dog and probably a cat have more sclera visible which is maybe why we relate to them so well. And we think they're talking to us. They don't have more than a human. They have more than the other animals. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah. Dogs and cats seem to have their scleras pretty white. Yeah. Also, um, I guess the, the sort of the other thing about for, I mean, so another position we use and then what, what we use for other animals to see where they're looking is obviously their head movement. And so they're not going to necessarily move their eyes as much, but what we can tell a lot also just by their head and their body positions, whereas humans, more than any other primate, will tend to look around because uh, we can look around a lot more without even having to move our head. Yeah. <laughs> move the eyeballs. Yes, and it's definitely seemed to evolve because soci- sociability 
communication uh, has become so much more important, uh, which is why, I mean, uh, another reason why we, we have the language to that, that uh, other animals don't Oh, it's have. fascinating. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Um, Ilan uh, Shira from the university, or Arkansas Tech University. He's a social psychologist walking us through the importance of your eyes and how your eyes, really, they're a tell, they're a sign, and maybe we need to be paying more attention to it. A lot of the things, like even just sensing that people are watching you, um, that's a that's a gift of uh, biology that's probably designed to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll take a break, folks. Come back more on eye contact right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. I know you're watching me. That's the problem. That's called gaze detection, folks. That sense that somebody's watching you, you're supposed to have that. I mean, it's helpful. I mean, unless, of course, no one is there. (laughs) Then it's just crazy. But that feeling that uh, people are watching you, it's designed – it's it's your way of being able to identify, you know, when you're safe, when you might have opportunities – and uh, our our guest right now, uh, Dr. Elon Shrira, joins us. He is um, teaching us about the importance of eye contact. He wrote a wonderful article in Psychology Today about our eye contact. And uh, we welcome you back to the show, Dr. Elon Shrira. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Talk us talk to us a little bit about um, why this why it matters. Like, I mean, when I look at someone's uh, and we're talking and they look away. And they look back. Why are they? Why? Why do we? How do we use our eyes? I guess is a better way of asking it to to kind of manage our connections and our communication. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. Um, where we look is uh, very significant. Uh, you mentioned looking away and looking back at someone. I guess, yeah. I guess. I guess first, it's important to say that obviously the context matters. And the relationship matters right. uh, between the people, but um, yeah, I mean, sort of, what is the norm in a situation? Is someone making a lot of eye contact? Is someone making very little eye contact? Do they keep? I mean, for example, do they keep looking at their watch? Do they keep looking at the clock? Um, it's uh, it's just so, and and I think most of the time it's just not something we're aware of. I mean, it, but it right. we react to it, and I think the awareness is, and and probably most of the time it's not a conscious feeling. Um, I should say I, I have gotten uh, I've talked to a lot of people about this um, when they hear that I know something about this is that they'll say well they'll, they'll tell me a story about how they were walking down the street and they sensed that someone in some building was um, they, they felt that they were being stared at so they looked over at the, the direction where they thought it was coming from and sure enough somebody was in a window looking in their general direction. And so this, I mean, when something, and I think that kind of thing has happened to us, we get some sort of intuition, we look, and someone's actually there, and that sort of really just seems to confirm that this, wow, I have some sort of ability that is maybe uh, a supernatural kind of thing almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it could just be energy, and it could just be validated, too, by every time it's happened, and it actually had, when someone was watching, they were like, yeah, see? But maybe we forget all the other times that people aren't watching. But in the end, I mean, 
it's very natural. The eye roll. I mean, how, anybody that's had a teenage girl or a teenage child, it's a natural thing to roll your eyes, and that communicates so much. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely. I'm not sure if that's a cultural thing. Yeah, if the eye rolling in, in every culture you do that. I mean, but certainly in our culture, that's that's such a, a vivid signal. And yeah, something we've we've learned. What should we do when it comes to eye contact? You know, as an expert, um, as a social psychologist, what should we pay attention to? What should we pay attention to? You mean it's it, yeah, like eye rolling? Uh-huh. Well, and just interacting with other people when it comes to eye contact. Do we? Do we? Do we? I mean, there's a point where too much eye contact's a problem. It's almost just like you've got to feel your way through it instead of just keep a fixed eye gaze. I mean, you can't just give them the rules. So much of it's natural, right? Yes, uh, and 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 you you sort of put your you put your finger right on it. Usually, what we will do is we will tend to mimic the other person, the amount of eye contact the other person is giving us, mm. uh, unless we really know them well, or unless maybe we're really high status or in control. Then high status people will tend to make more eye contact when they're speaking to someone. But in most situations. It's um, it's we just sort of mimic the other person, and it's not really clear where the other person is is getting it from. But usually, following the rule, imitating the other person, both in eye contact and body language, is usually the automatic thing. It usually gets other people to like us more, yeah, and to see us as more similar. So that's probably the best default rule. If someone's making lots of eye contact or little eye contact, but obviously, if I mean, if someone is just not looking at you and looking away, you don't want to. Copy that. You right. want to make a certain amount. Just um, distance matters. So what you find is that when P, if you're talking to somebody and they're right up in your face and you're just um, and let's say you don't know them that well, we'll tend to not make as much eye contact. It's mm-hmm. a little bit too intimate if you're like really like up a, a couple feet away from somebody. Whereas if you're halfway across the room, we'll feel a lot more comfortable making direct eye contact and a lot more of it. It's not as overwhelming. So that's definitely oh, that's uh, great stuff. And then um, uh, I think it was Dr. Arthur Aaron who did the study on closeness, talked about you know three, four, five minutes of eye to eye contact uh, can also create closeness with people, which is natural when we're dating somebody. We look into their eyes a lot more. It seems like with a lot of the couples I work with that are struggling in their marriages, where there's you know anxiety and tension, they tend to look into each other's eyes a lot less. Absolutely, and the study you describe is a great illustration. He he asked some people, uh, I believe it was a, a man and a woman, to like sit in uh, a chair across from one another, and for some of them, yeah, just stare in each other's eyes for five minutes and don't say anything. And afterward, those people really liked each other a lot more yeah. than people who, uh, yeah. So and I mean, that works. That's yeah. It, it's it's interesting through the eyes, right? I guess the the windows to the soul. Um, well, we appreciate you, Doctor Elon uh, uh, Shira. We really, I mean, to me, I love uh, learning about this. And I think again, the article I recommend Psych- on psychology today: how you know eyes are watching you, uh, and keep up your great work there. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You bet. Wonderful stuff, folks. We're going to take a break. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you live longer, and you know, watching people's eyes might help there. It also is to help you love stronger. Pay attention to you know the, the people that you care about. Pay attention to their eyes. Notice the emotion. Notice, notice if they have anxiety or a fear or aggression. 
pick up on these signs and instead of like fighting them on it or just fighting or flighting, engage them. Talk about it. You seem sad. You seem you seem mad. Talk to me. See if we can turn some of these looks into words, which is a great gift of the human. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are Dr. Mattless, but that is okay because his loss is my gain and that I get to speak with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, fellas. How you doing? Hello, Jeffrey. I've got a baseball mitt on right now. <gasps> it's opening day. I'm yes. Excited. Root, root, I'm, root for the a, Dodgers. I know you like the Doyers, yeah. Uh, I like the Mariners. They play tonight at Houston. I'm very excited. I would root for them. I lived in Seattle for That's about right. five years. We talked about this. I'm So the Mariners' home opener is one week from today. I will be at that game. I'm very excited. You know, I think I told you this before, but it's so frustrating to me that it took us moving away from Seattle before all the Seattle teams start doing you know well in the sports like the they win the Super Bowl and the women's basketball team is spectacular and the Mariners have a winning record. Yeah, they, they haven't made the playoffs in a long time, though, so it's not quite there. What, 95? Playoffs? Like 01. 01. That's right. They, won, they won 116 games. 16 games. That's right. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But then lost in the divisionals. <laughs> I know. Crazy. <laughs> I know the, the year, baby. I know you guys like to make uh, wild and crazy predictions, so who are, you, who are you choosing this year to win it all? The Baltimore Orioles. The Seattle Mariners. Really? What are my real picks? <laughs> I think the Cubs could repeat. I think they're that good. The Cubs are that good. They the have, Nationals are also really good. Nationals are good. Yeah, there's there's a the Astros. The Astros are pretty good. That's who uh, Seattle plays tonight. We'll see. The, listen, the Indians are good again. I, I still mean, can't believe the phrase that you just uttered is a reality. The Astros are pretty good. I know. They're going to win the division, I bet, unless it's the Mariners. I was on the Astros in Little League, and I can tell you that the Astros were not really good. (laughs) I played for the White Sox, Rockies, trying to think. It was always fun because then you got into that team, you know, when you were little. Yep. I'm, like, kind of on the team. Wait. Greatest Houston Astro ever. Go. Jeff Bagwell. Oh, okay. Craig Biggio. Jeff Simpson. Yeah, both those. Jeff Simpson. <laughs> now, some would was argue, not on roids. Some would argue yeah. that Nolan Ryan was the guy. Yeah. Well, he bound, he wasn't with Houston. But he wasn't with them for a long time. time. He yeah, was all he right. He was with them. Yeah. Plus, was he even good? All all I know him for is no-hitter strikeouts and, uh, like, Tylenol. No, <laughs> all Advil. we know him for is 5,000 strikeouts, man. Advil, was it Advil specifically? He did. He always did some pain relief commercials. In the oh, yeah. that's right. He had some of the most epic and battles. Like, and I'm yeah. not talking, like, Baseball battles, like punching, fist, people, like coming yeah. to fisticuffs that I've with ever Robin seen. <laughs> How about those uh, head and shoulders commercials with Mike Piazza too? Oh, yeah. Remember those? Mike Piazza, he's uh, my favorite Italian baseball player of all time. Yeah. So as you know, it was also April Fool's Day over the weekend. Yeah. Did you guys have anybody that hey, made Jared, a fool Jared out of had you? Had an experience, didn't you, buddy? <gasps> Tell you about my Tell piece us. of work, mother. So she. She felt bad over the weekend. So she sends me a text Saturday saying, hey, Bruce, my stepdad, is in the hospital with complications from surgery, so pray for us. And I was like, what surgery? What happened? She's like, what kind of surgery? She goes, in April Fool's surgery. And I go, mom, 
It's too much. But she sent a picture yeah, with him in a, a bed. Oh, my yeah. goodness. It's like, too much. I was like, too much. She's got a morbid sense of humor. She, she's normally not this way. She's like the most conservative, passive, friendliest, kindest, quietest person ever. Wow. And so for her to send that was really... She got me good. I'll, hey, I'll give it to her. So you didn't put any peanut butter behind the uh, refrigerator handle or uh, wrap a rubber band around the uh, the hose connection? I did that too. Aforementioned stepdad Bruce. He was not very happy. As <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Well, hopefully nobody did anything uh, beyond that. You survived, so that's good. Yeah. Nothing that we're going to admit. Ooh. Now I'm Nolan, curious. Nolan Ryan spent nine years with the Astros, by the way. So that was much longer than I anticipated. Still thank, not the greatest asteroid. Thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> Still not Craig Biggio or Jeff, Jeff Bagwell. Bagwell, dude. So, now what about Gonzaga and the big game? What are oh, your predictions there? Wait a second. We need to talk with you. Did you mean to call them Gonzaga? Or do, you, do, do we need do we, to instruct need you to on the proper you? pronunciation? <laughs> Is it, I knew what's it would, their nickname? I knew it would send you up the wall. I just wanted to see how you'd react. Gonzaga. Yeah. They're not the Zogs or the Zags. Okay, now that that's out of the way. That's our trending topic today, actually. Do you want Gonzaga to win or not? Yes, that why is seriously not? our trending topic. And, and you know why? Because BYU did what, Jerem? They're the only team to beat them. That's right. Yeah, moral victory for Brigham. The actual victory was the win. It's an interesting topic, right? Because do you dislike Gonzaga to the point you want them to lose? We're finding that the only people that want Gonzaga to lose are the people who have, like, North Carolina in their bracket. To win it. That's, those are the only people that want them to lose. Everyone else is like, yeah, win, win, win. Unless you're a member of uh, Stillman White's family, who is LDS and plays for North Carolina, or they're your bracket winner. I can't think of any other reason. Yeah, if it was St. Mary's, <laughs> I'd be like, please lose. Okay, so that's coming up on the show. What else? Mm, how about coach Gennaro Guilford? Yeah, we've got that. And Ultimate Frisbee makes its BYU Sports Nation debut. The, the coach, Bryce Merrill, will be on the show. BYU has an Ultimate Frisbee team. The coach will be on the show today, Bryce Merrill. Whoa. The coach of the Ultimate Frisbee team. And they're good. It's not they're just a really, Frisbee team. They're it's really the good. Ultimate Frisbee team. No, they, I said Ultimate. I know. <laughs> they are being held out of the uh, national tournament. Well, by choice. We always make the choice. Um, there's Sunday play in there, so they're not going to go for the second year in a row. They're ranked number 10. They're good. Wow. But they're not good. So we'll talk to them about that. Is that frustrating for the program? Why? They're not. Uh, Ultimate Frisbee is not an NCAA sport, so they're not obligated to make an exception for BYU, whereas all the other sports are. Well, gentlemen, we got to let you go, but I just want to say that uh, the wife and I tonight will or will be watching uh, Gonzaga win the game, oh the big yeah, game, yeah, Gonzaga. Gonzaga. All right, good to talk to you. We'll talk to you guys again tomorrow. Good love, luck. Love you. Bye. Bye, bye Jeff. Bye-bye. <sighs> Leave it up to them to give me a <laughs> hard poupon. time. Gray Poupon. That was great. Have you ever had Gray Poupon? I have. It is a great mustard. Really? It's made with white wine. As far as mustards go, I suppose it might be good. I don't it know is, that I've ever tried it. It is the fanciest of Dijon mustards. Hmm. That's why they said it, because you were all fancy. Yeah, well, that's why I've spoken that voice. <laughs> Gonzaga. Yes. Mm, um, I probably won't be watching the game, to be honest with you. But that's just when me. When is it? Is it at two? See, I couldn't even tell them when the game was. That's how out of the loop I am. I think it's a two. I actually, yeah, maybe. We'll see. All right. Well, we won't see because I won't be watching it. <laughs>
Because oh, I don't need to is the thing because we can just ask them what happened and they give us a recap and we can That's tune true. into BYU Sports Nation. At 920 Eastern, Terry says. So tune in or don't tune in. Tune in to us, though. If you're the type of person that doesn't know how to pronounce Gonzaga, then you're probably not going to be tuning in. The Zags. Yeah, the Zags. Anyway, we teased a story earlier that we still haven't gotten to, um, but it's very timely because Terry has been talking a lot about stadium food. And when you think of stadium food, it's hard not to think of McDonald's because it's kind of on the same level. Uh, I, I apologize if I offend any McDonald's lovers. I frequent McDonald's because I have kids. I had to throw that disclaimer or that I had to throw that there on the end because I have kids. Anyway, in Texas, a man dressed in a leopard print robe used a hairbrush to rob a Texas, Texas McDonald's. And, uh, his name is Givondis Desmond Joseph or Demond Joseph. Who's 29 of Port Arthur, Texas? He's charged with first degree felony aggravated robbery. Groves police say that Joseph used a hairbrush under his robe to pretend he was armed during the robbery. Officers were told that Joseph was wearing a black piece of clothing over his face, a leopard print robe, orange gloves, and orange Crocs. It's quite the fashion statement <laughs> he's is, got going on there. Quite the fashion statement. When officers arrived at the McDonald's, they saw Joseph running from the scene. He was taken into custody after a short foot chase. Probably a very short foot chase. I don't in know if Crocs, you've ever tried yeah. to run in Crocs, but uh, they squeak. Yeah. They squeak. Doesn't end too well. So lesson to the outlaw: Don't wear Crocs to a McDonald's robbery. And word, don't use a hairbrush. Word to the wise. Don't use a hairbrush. Don't wear Crocs. Come Maybe prepared. It, be it's prepared. the orange. If you don't want to be spotted, don't wear something that's going to give you away. Wear stealthy Crocs, like some matte black Crocs. Ooh, stealthy Crocs. Sounds like a new line. Sounds like a new promo. Stealthy Crocs. It's still a Croc. But stealthy. But stealthy. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as you know, we like to end the show with our hero story of, of the day and uh, – our hero story today deals with a teacher who raises $80,000 for bikes for elementary school's entire student body. Amazing. So about 650 students at Pepper Hill Elementary School received brand new bikes, all thanks to first grade teacher Katie Blumquist. In September, uh, right after Labor Day, Blumquist started a campaign on GoFundMe in hopes of raising $65,000 for the bicycles. She said today that uh, she'd initially come up with the idea to start the campaign for a student who wanted a bike that she couldn't afford. She said this is a chance for them to truly own something of value. From there, she said the idea blossomed, and in the summer she decided that she'd get every child at Pepper Hill a bicycle for Christmas, or by Christmas. I had no idea what I was getting into, she told ABC affiliate WCIV-TV in Charleston, South Carolina, and it became a thousand times more amazing